to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and Sarah Jane in the final story of Season 11 in Planet of the Spiders. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, Paddy, over to you for this final story of Season 11. Cool guys, get the hankies ready. (laughs) Part 1. At an English country estate, Mike Yates is wandering the grounds. He enters the main house and hears a strange chanting coming from somewhere inside. He goes to investigate and discovers it coming from a secret room in the cellar. Inside, he sees a group of men sitting in a circle around an ancient mandala, which is used in Far Eastern religions. However, he accidentally wanders into a large cobweb and knocks over a mounted candle in his efforts to get free. The chanters stop and Yates flees from the scene before he is seen. Unfortunately for him, the chanters realise who he is when they hear his car, which is the only one at the estate, drive away. Meanwhile, the doctor and the brigadier attend a cabaret act to witness a performance by Professor Clegg, a mind reader. After the show, which also contained a belly dancing performance that the brigadier greatly appreciated, Professor Clegg is invited by the doctor back to his lab at Unit HQ. The doctor tells him that he is doing research into psychic phenomenon and would like his assistance with it. Clegg says that he is merely a showman and his act is entirely fake, but the Doctor reveals that he knows that Clegg is actually a very powerful clairvoyant. Clegg admits that he not only sees a clairvoyant, but his abilities have recently grown to include uh, psychokinesis, which the Doctor explains to the Brigadier is the ability to move things with his mind. Clegg gives a demonstration by levitating a nearby tree. He isn't able to maintain it for long, though. The Doctor tells him that his abilities are something that lie dormant within all humans, but Clegg seems to have tapped into them somehow. Clegg agrees to help the Doctor with his experiments to see how he can do what he does. At the country estate, Mr. Lupton, the man who was leading the chant, tells the Tibetan monk Cho Ji about the impending arrival of a female journalist to the house. Lupton says that he and the other residents in the house don't want her to arrive, but Cho Ji says that they must let her come as they must learn to face the challenges that they don't want to in life. Cho Ji leaves and Lupton goes to speak with one of his colleagues, Barnes, about the arrival of the journalist. Barnes suggests that they stop their plan for the time being, but Lupton refuses as they are nearing their goal. They are suddenly interrupted by Tommy, the intellectually challenged handyman for the estate, who wants to show them a flower. They try to ignore him, but he then asks if they want some tea, and Barnes pushes him to the ground and then goes away with Lupton, leaving a dejected Tommy to sadly look at his crushed flower. At the nearby train station, Yates collects Sarah Jane and takes her to the house. En route, he explains that the house is actually a meditation centre sent up by a group of Tibetan monks, and he went there to come to peace with himself after the fallout of Operation Golden Age. He reveals that he brought her there as he thinks something strange is going on and he would like her to take a look around and report back to the doctor and the brigadier as he feels that they may not be inclined to listen to him. Suddenly a tractor appears in front of them and Yates swerves off the road to avoid it. When they look back they see that it has completely disappeared and Sarah Jane agrees to investigate. Unbeknownst to them the tractor was an illusion summoned by Lupton and the other chanters. In the doctor's lab Clegg is hooked up to an EEG machine to monitor his brainwaves. The doctor then gives him the brigadier's watch for a psychometry test to see how much information he can glean from it. The test is successful and the brigadier stops Clegg before he reveals any more personal information. The doctor then hands him his sonic screwdriver test and turns on the monitor to get a pictographic view of Clegg's brainwaves. The doctor and the brigadier watch as the monitor shows images of the Drashigs, the creatures the doctor encountered in a device called the Miniscope. Benton arrives with a package from South America. The doctor takes it and asks Clegg what is inside without opening it, and he reveals that it is a blue crystal from Nechabila's tree. The doctor opens it and reads a letter from Joe, which details her trip to the Amazon with Cliff. 
She says that the natives helping locate the toadstool that they are trying to find are superstitious of the crystal and are refused to help any further unless she gets rid of it. At the meditation centre, Sarah Jane interviews Cho Ji with Yates and he discusses the purpose of meditation and how it will allow people to overcome their fears and open themselves to new enlightenment. Yates asks if people could be manipulated through meditation and Cho Ji says that those that seek to do evil could do so but then leaves to start a meditation group. Yates then takes Sarah Jane on a tour of the house and they come across a meditation group listening to a recording of Tibetan chanting. They then meet Lupton and Barnes who ask about her interview with Cho Ji. Sarah Jane starts to talk about the tractor incident, but Yates pinches her to stop. Lupton invites her to dine with them, but Yates says it is time for her to leave for her train. Lupton and Barnes watch them depart, and Lupton, thinking that they have successfully scared them off, tells Barnes to convene with the other members of their group. However, Yates only drives to the edge of the estate, and then says that they will go back on foot to avoid being seen. They sneak into the house, but are caught by Tommy, who thinks that they are playing a game. Sarah Jane goes along with this and tells him that they are playing a game called Secrets and says that he can't tell anyone that she is there. She notices his fascination with her brooch and gives it to him as a bribe. Yates then leads her into the cellar so that they can observe Lupton's group. They find a place to hide and then watch as Lupton and the others arrive and begin their chant. In the doctor's lab, the whole room shakes and a violent wind blows as the crystal begins to glow in Clegg's hands. He suddenly cries out in pain as the doctor reaches out for him and the doctor reveals that he is dead. In the cellar of the meditation centre, Lupton and the others chanting intensifies as a glowing light suddenly appears from the mandala. It then fades away, revealing a large black spider. Part 2. The chanters recoil in shock from the spider, and one of them attempts to flee, but is knocked out by a bolt of energy from the spider. Lupton commands it to leave, but the spider says that it has come to grant him the power he seeks. The spider tells him to turn around, and then it then launches itself onto his back before fading from sight. Lupton tends to turns back to the others with a strange smile on his face. He sends everyone away and tells them not to say a word to anyone. After they leave, Yates takes Sarah Jane to the window that he snuck in and tells her to go tell the doctor and the brigadier what is happening whilst he stays to get more information. He then takes cover behind a curtain when he hears Lupton and Barnes approaching and he listens as Lupton explains that he is sharing a mental link with the spider. The spider tells him to send Barnes away and tells him that it is time to go retrieve the crystal. Meanwhile, Clegg's body is taken away, and the doctor uses the monitor to see if his final thoughts were captured on it, and when he turns it on, he sees images of large spiders. The doctor says he will use his own telepathic abilities to communicate with the crystal. The brigadier says that it could be dangerous, and Benton volunteers to try it first, highlighting his expendability, but the doctor refuses to risk his life. The doctor goes into a deep trance, and when he comes out of it, he says that when he communed with the crystal, he saw the face of the old hermit who taught him how to harness his own mental abilities. Back at the meditation centre, Yates tries to sneak upstairs to meet Campo, the abbot of the monks, but he is stopped by Tommy. Tommy threatens to hit him, but Yates stops and gives him a pendant he is wearing as a gift. Tommy then leaves, but when Yates tries to go upstairs again, he is stopped by Lupton and is forced to go to his room. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane arrives back at the doctor's lab and tells him what she saw, but he is too preoccupied with the crystal and only pays attention to half of her story. However, he becomes serious when she mentions the spider and he has her start over. Once she is finished, he tells her a story of how he found the crystal in Metabula's tree and how it can amplify telepathic abilities. Outside, Lupton arrives and asks a mechanic working in the doctor's hover car where he can find the doctor. The mechanic gives him directions, but when he asks to see his ID card, Lupton shoots him with a bolt of energy. He does the same to Benton when he tries to stop him in the hallway outside the doctor's lab. He looks through the window of the lab and sees the crystal, and the spider tells him to concentrate. He manages to teleport the crystal from the lab into his hands and flees, knocking Benton to the ground again as he tries to stop him. 
Lachlan Sarah Jane help Benton up and they all rush after Lupton. They call out to the Brigadier to stop him when they see him coming back and the Brigadier shoots at Lupton as he runs to the hover car. Lupton takes off on it and Benton pulls up in Bessie. He drops the Doctor to a nearby airfield so he can follow Lupton from the air via a small gyrocopter whilst the Brigadier, Benton and Sarah Jane pursue him in Bessie. A high-speed chase then ensues and Lupton then abandons the hover car before hiding in a nearby field. The Doctor lands as the others pull up in Bessie and they prepare to search for Lupton but he suddenly rushes from his hiding spot and takes off in the unattended gyrocopter. Doctor and Sarah Jane then get into the hover car, which is also able to fly, and the chase begins again, with the Brigadier and Benton following in Bessie. Lupton is forced to land when the gyrocopter runs out of fuel, and he lands near a river. He makes his way down to the riverside and steals a boat. The Doctor and Sarah Jane go down to the riverside as well, and the Doctor spots a one-man hovercraft nearby and follows after Lupton alone. Lupton manages to lose him at one point, but the Doctor takes a detour by cutting across a field floating over a sleeping tramp as he does so. He finally manages to catch up to Lupton and jumps onto the boat, but he is shocked to discover that Lupton has completely disappeared. Part 3. Lupton materialises in the meditation centre and he examines the crystal before quickly pushing it away when Choji walks past. He then leaves for his room, but unbeknownst to him, Tommy follows him after seeing the crystal. In his room, Lupton asks if the crystal will give him the power he seeks and the spider says it will, but he must shield his thoughts to hide his ambition. The spider says that if her sisters on Metabula's tree detect his ambition, then they will kill him. She then says that they are trying to establish a link with her, and an astral projection of Lupton appears in a room filled with spiders. The spider tells the queen spider that she has the crystal, and the queen tells her to prepare for the return to Metabula's tree. Lupton demands to be rewarded for his service, and the queen says that he can continue to serve them in their plans to conquer Earth, which she says is their ancestral home. The link is then broken, and the spider tells Lupton to rest, and after he falls asleep, she dislodges from his back and makes her way into the hallway. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Sarah Jane have arrived at the meditation centre, and together with the Yates they go to speak with Choji about Lupton's theft of the crystal. Choji says that he saw Lupton in the centre at the time that he was supposedly stealing the crystal. The conversation is overheard by Barnes, who rushes to Lupton's room to tell him about it. He then sees the crystal in Lupton's hand and suggests that they should stop their plan as it is getting too dangerous. Lupton refuses and places the crystal down whilst he washes up. He then tells Barnes his history as a successful salesman that was let go from his job and his reason for coming to the meditation centre was to gain power so he could get his revenge on the company that fired him. Neither of them spot Tommy as he reaches through the open window and takes the crystal. He takes it to his room under the stairs and adds it to his collection of other pretty things. The spider reappears in Lupton's room and tells him that Choji is on his way to collect him to speak with the doctor. She tells him to send Barnes away and after he goes she says that he needs to get ready to talk to the doctor. Lupton nonchalantly says that there is no need, but the spider uses her mental link to torture him until he agrees to follow her instructions. He then taps into the link himself and reverses the pain until the spider begs for mercy. He relents when she says that he doesn't have to talk to the doctor and instead tells him to prepare for their trip to Metabula's tree. The Lupton says that he doesn't want to be a slave to the queen and the spider says she intends to overthrow her and if Lupton helps then he can have control of the earth. Lupton agrees and she reattaches herself to his back. He then goes to retrieve the crystal and discovers it's missing. Meanwhile, Tommy goes to Choji's room and discreetly calls Sarah Jane over to him. He thanks her for the gift she gave him earlier and asks her to come with him so he can give her one in return. She agrees but says they need to be quick and they leave for his room. He brings her to the staircase and tells her to wait outside whilst he goes inside to get her present. While she is waiting, she overhears Lupton and Barnes approaching and takes cover so that they don't see her. 
The spider warns Lupton that they are running out of time, as the crystal needs to be found before they are brought back to Mashabula's tree. Lupton says that they will have to simply bluff the other spiders. Just then, Moss, another member of Lupton's group, appears and says that Choji wants him to go and meet the doctor in Yates. Lupton tells him to say that he couldn't find him, and then goes with Barnes to get the mandala for the ritual. After they leave, Tommy comes out of his room and tries to give Sarah Jane her gift, but she tells him instead to go find Yates and tell him she has gone to the cellar to try and stop Lupton. She then goes into the cellar and Tommy spots Lupton going in a few moments later, and he then goes to find Yates. He finds him at the doctor in Choji's room and tries to tell them, but Yates ignores him despite the doctor's advice, thinking it is unimportant. Mostyn arrives and says that he couldn't find Lupton, and Tommy says that Lupton is in the cellar. The duo rush to the cellar where they hear Sarah Jane calling out to them after she watched Lupton disappear in a glowing blue light. She then goes to investigate the mandala, but then gets stuck onto it. The doctor goes to her to try and get her off it, but she finds herself transported to the canyons of Metabula's tree, where she is captured by an unseen figure. The doctor tells Yates that he must go to Metabula's tree to find Sarah Jane, saying that he has pre-programmed the coordinates to the planet. He then tells the sceptical Yates that the TARDIS will land him on the right place on the planet. On Metabula's tree, Sarah Jane is brought to a village where she is called a spy by her captor. One of the village elders, Sabor, condemns the man, who is his son Tuar, for bringing her, saying that he has condemned them all to death. Sarah Jane denies being a spy for the spiders, but this only aggravates the villagers, as spider is a forbidden word to all but their servants. Tuar goes to throw Sarah Jane into the valley below the village, but another man, Tuar's brother Arak, emerges from a hut and tells him to stop. He asks Sarah Jane where she is from, and she says Earth, which leads to more questions from everyone. However, they hear a trumpet heralding the arrival of the Spider Queen, and Arik takes her into his hut to hide her. They listen as one of the Queen's guards calls out for Arik's arrest as he attacked one of them, leaving him for dead. And if he does not give himself up, then one male from each household will be killed in his stead. Arik goes to give himself up, but Sabor says that he will go instead and plead for his life. Sabor says that the guard was victimising the other villagers, but the Queen silences him and demands to know where Arik is. Sabor says that he helped him escape, and the Queen says that he must take Arik's place for the punishment. Sarah Jane asks what the penalty is, and Tuar says that he will be eaten alive by the spiders. Neska, who is Sabor's wife, runs outside to plead for his life, but she is stunned by one of the guards. The Queen then spots Sarah Jane when she looks out of the doorway, but rather than risk Arik's discovery, she goes outside and gives herself up. Suddenly the TARDIS appears and the Doctor gets out. A guard tries to stun him with his weapon, but it doesn't work on the Doctor, and the Queen tells him to let approach her. The Doctor asks to be allowed to take Sarah Jane back to Earth, but the Queen instead orders him to be taken prisoner and brought back to the palace. The Doctor fends off the guards as they try to capture him. In the confusion, Neska and her daughter, Riga, take a cloak and put it over Sarah Jane and hide her amongst the other villagers. The Doctor manages to dispatch most of the guards, but one of them hits him with a bolt of energy, causing him to fall to the ground. Part 4 The Queen orders the guards to bring her back to the castle along with the captive Sabor as night is approaching. After they leave, Sarah Jane rushes to the Doctor's body and begs Tuar to help him, but he says that he is dead and they need to get back inside before dark. Sarah Jane then sees the Doctor move weakly, and together she and Tuar bring him inside. A bell rings to signal the start of the curfew, and Sarah Jane tends to the Doctor whilst Arik and the others mourn the fate of Sabor. In the City of the Spiders, the Queen is brought back into the throne room where she sees Lupton waiting for her. Lupton's spider challenges the Queen's authority in front of their assembled kindred, and the Queen orders her and Lupton to be taken captive. Lupton and, the, uh, Lupton and the spider remind her that they have the crystal, but have hidden it until they have been adequately rewarded. 
This shocks the Queen and the others, who say that they are acting in defiance of their leader, whom they call the Great One. The Queen then blames them for the arrival of the Doctor and Sarah Jane, and says that until Sarah Jane is captured, they will not be listened to. Back in the meditation centre, Barnes and the others discuss Lupton's disappearance. Moss suggests that they all leave in case there is a police investigation, but Barnes says that they need to find a way to bring Lupton back. He then notices the door handle moving, and he opens it, revealing Tommy outside in the act of polishing the handle. Barnes pushes him away and tells him not to come back. After he leaves, Yates appears and starts to eavesdrop on the group. Tommy goes to his room under the stairs and begins to practice his reading skills. Suddenly the crystal begins to glow and Tommy stares at it until he passes out from the strain. He wakes up a few moments later with his mental faculties completely restored. In Arik's hut, Tuar demands that they attack the city to rescue Sabor, but Arik says it is suicide. The two brothers then argue until they are stopped by Riga. Sarah Jane says that the doctor was awake and he could help them. At the mention of his name, the doctor slowly regains consciousness and weakly tells Sarah Jane to go to the TARDIS to retrieve a piece of equipment from it. The others tell her to be careful when she leaves, as the penalty for breaking the curfew is death. Sarah Jane manages to retrieve the piece of equipment, but is confronted by Lupton after she exits the TARDIS. Inside the hut, Arik and Tuar continue to argue about the best way to rebel against the spiders, and Arik says that they must use the doctor's help. He looks out to the TARDIS and sees the piece of equipment, but no sign of Sarah Jane. He leaves the hut to retrieve it and brings it back to the Doctor, who takes it off them after they tell him that Sarah Jane is gone. The Doctor uses the machine, which causes energy to fly out from his fingers. When it stops, he thanks them for their help as his strength starts to return to him. At that moment, Sarah Jane is brought to a room in the city where she sees several bodies, including Sabors, bound up in webs. She tries to resist, but is stunned by one of the guards. She wakes up later to find herself also bound in webs, and Sabor tells her that they are being preserved to be eaten. In the meditation centre, Yates knocks on Barnes's door and tells Barn he wants to talk, but he's knocked out by a nervous moss. The next morning on Metabula's tree, the doctor is back to normal and joins Arik and the others for breakfast, where they tell him about their day descendants of a ship of Earth colonists that crashed nearly 500 years ago. Tuar berates the doctor for being so nonchalant while Sarah Jane is at risk, but he says that they will keep her alive for the time being for questioning. Arik then continues with his story, which is concurrently being told to Sarah Jane by Sabor. He says that the spiders on the planet also came from the ship, and he explains that their massive sight is due to generations of being exposed to the crystals in the mountains. He says that their minds also grew due to the exposure, which accounts for their powers. Back in Arik's hut, the doctor asks him and Tuar to go out and collect several different types of pebbles as he wants to test the theory. They bring in the pebbles and he says he is searching for a type with the mineral properties that would allow him to resist the abilities of the spiders. He finds what he is looking for, and then after coming up with a plan with the others, he sets off towards the city. He manages to infiltrate the city, but he is caught by the guards and Lupton, who tells him to kill him. However, a guard commander would or- appears with orders from the Queen for Lupton's arrest. The Doctor is also taken into custody and is led towards the chamber containing Sarah Jane, whose initial enthusiasm at his appearance is short-lived. Part 5 In the throne room, Lupton and his colleague are sentenced to death after the Queen says that they have de- detected the crystal on Earth. Lupton says that they still require his help to actually find the crystal, as well as help with their invasion of Earth. Lupton's spider again tries to rally support against the Queen, who manages to quell the others by saying that she will seek guidance for the invasion from the Great One. Meanwhile, the Doctor has been webbed up and placed near Sarah Jane, where he tries to put her at ease by making some dinner-based puns. He then starts to reveal his and Arik's plan to her and Sabor, but they are interrupted by a group of guards who take Sarah Jane with them. After they leave, the Doctor manages to get free of his web using some escapology skills he says he learned from Harry Houdini. 
He then tells Samor he will come back after he has rescued Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane is brought to the Queen's private chambers, where she tells her prisoner that she is opposed to the invasion of Earth, as she thinks it is a foolish idea. She offers to help her and the Doctor escape so they can return the crystal to her and avert the invasion. Sarah Jane is sceptical of her statement and asks what would happen to Samor. The Queen says that she will free him and give the other humans a form to air their grievances, which makes Sarah Jane agree to help. Back at the village, Arik and Tuar say their goodbyes to Nesca as they prepare to round up the men from the other villages to attack the city. Arik gives them all headbands containing one of the pebbles that is capable of resisting the attacks of the spiders and their guards. Back on Earth, Barnes arrives in his room and speaks with Yates, who offers to help them with their ceremony so they can bring back Lupton as well as Sarah Jane. They then go to find the others and are overheard by Tommy, who has gone to seek Yates so he can understand what has happened to his mind. He hears Yates say that they will meet in the cellar, which triggers a memory of Lupton's sudden appearance outside it earlier. He decides to go to Choji, but hides the crystal in his room before going. On Metabila's tree, Lupton tries to get the spider to obey his plan to retrieve the crystal, but she refuses and mentally assaults him along with the others until he submits to her command. The spiders then go over to her plan to attack Earth. Meanwhile, the doctor roams the corridors as he suddenly hears Sarah Jane calling for him. He finds a corridor that leads into a cave system, and he follows Sarah Jane's voice, but another voice suddenly appears and tells him to stop. The voice tells him that if he goes any further, his body will be bombarded by deadly radiation from the crystals, which are embedded in the cave walls. The voice then reveals that they mimic Sarah Jane's in order to lure him into the caves, and they also reveal that she is the Great One that the spiders worship. The Great One tells him that he can only get Sarah Jane back once he returns with the crystal, which is the last pure power crystal from the planet. The Doctor refuses, and the Great One launches a mental assault against him, using him like a puppet despite his best efforts to resist. The Great One gleefully says that she can sense his fear, and then releases him so that he can retrieve the crystal. Back on Earth, Yates and the others begin the chant, which unbeknownst to them is noticed by the spiders, who transmit a few of their numbers secretly into the cellar. Meanwhile, Tommy alerts Choji to the events in the cellar, and the monk sends him to retrieve the crystal, whilst he goes to the cellar to stop the ritual. In the cellar, Choji is hit by a bolt of energy from one of the newly arrived spiders, and Yates is also hit when he tries to help him. Tommy witnesses this and rushes off to tell Campo. Back on Metabila's tree, the doctor finds Sarah Jane back in the prisoner's chamber, and they hear Arik and the others arrive. Sarah Jane grabs onto the doctor, and together they disappear as Arik and Tuar enter the room and begin to free the prisoners. They reappear at the village, where Sarah Jane tells an astonished Nesca and Riga of the rescue going on at the city, and she then takes the doctor into the TARDIS and they travel back to Earth. They find Yates and Choji on the floor, but then Barnes and the others attack them, using the abilities of the spiders that have now attached themselves to their backs. The doctor uses one of the pebbles to fend off their attacks, and they are rescued by Tommy, who clears the way for them to escape, and seems to be immune to the energy bolts. They lock the cellar, and the doctor reassures Sarah Jane that Yates and Choji are just unconscious. Tommy then leads him to Campo, who welcomes them in. The doctor greets him in Tibetan, apologising for not bringing a ceremonial gift, but Campo mysteriously says that there is no need for gifts between them. Tommy then goes outside to stand guard in case the others get out of the cellar. Campo tells the doctor to tell him about the crystal, and the doctor, feeling that he knows Campo somehow, tells him of his original trip to Metabula's tree. Meanwhile, Barnes and leaders escape from the cellar, and the spiders force them to obey them. The spiders then sense the presence of the crystal, which is actually with Campo in his room. When Campo shows it to the doctor, Sarah Jane demands that it be given to her, and she begins to speak with the Queen's voice. She then shoots the doctor with an energy bolt, and Campo uses his own mental abilities to break the illusion, and they see the Queen on Sarah Jane's back. Outside, 
Barnes and the others arrive, but Tommy refuses to let them pass. He successfully manages to fend off their physical attacks, but then they all start to shoot him with energy bolts. Part 6 Inside his room, Campo and the Doctor try to reach through to Sarah Jane to break the Queen's hold on her. Campo uses the crystal to break the control, and the Queen falls off her back and vanishes from sight. Sarah Jane apologises for her weakness in allowing the Queen to trick her, but the Doctor reassures her that she is not to be blamed. Campo then says that even the strongest of minds can be susceptible to being dominated, and the Doctor explains that he is talking about the Doctor's thirst for knowledge, which led him to take the crystal in the first place. The Doctor then realises where he recognises Campo from, and explains to Sarah Jane that he is the hermit who taught him back on his home planet. Campo says that, like the Doctor, he did not agree with Time Lord society, and so he regenerated in order to escape, ending up in Tibet. The Doctor explains the process of regeneration to a confused Sarah Jane. She asks if Choji is also a Time Lord, but Kampo says that Choji is actually a mental projection created by Kampo. At that moment, Choji wakes up with Yates and says they need to get out of the cellar. Outside Kampo's room, Tommy is able to withstand the barrage of energy bolts, and the spiders say they need more power to get past them and start to chant again. The chant is detected by the other spiders on Metabilis Tree, and they start to channel their powers to their kindred on Earth. Kanpo senses this and says that a moment of truth is now approaching for both him and the Doctor, telling him that he must face his fear and confront the Great One again. The Doctor reluctantly accepts his fate and takes the crystal from Kanpo, telling Sarah Jane that he must return it to Metabilis Tree. Outside, they hear the renewed assault against Tommy. Yates appears and tries to help Tommy, but is unable to withstand the barrage and collapses to the ground. Tommy goes to help him, which allows Baron and the others to force their way past him into the room. Campo uses his powers to transport the Doctor to the cellar so he can get to the TARDIS, but he is hit by an energy bolt by Barnes. Barnes and the others rush to stop the Doctor, but they are too late as he leaves. The Doctor arrives back on Metabulus Tree, and he is greeted by Arik and Tuar, who say that their assault on the city was successful. He asks them to lead him into the caves, where the Great One resides, and despite their warnings, they lead him towards the city. However, they lead him into the throne room, where he realises that the attack failed and that they are under control of the spiders. The Queen demands that he hand over the crystal, but he says that he will only give it to the Great One. Lupton tries to take it from him, but the Queen and the others stop him, saying that they cannot move against the Great One. The Doctor goes towards the caves, and Lupton tries to attack the Queen in anger for ruining his chances of gaining power, but she kills him. Back on Earth, Yates comes to, and Campo explains that his compassion in trying to save Tommy mitigated the damage from the energy bolts, much like Tommy's innocent nature allowed him to withstand the barrage. He then passes out, saying his body has worn out. Choji starts to tell them not to worry, but he fades from sight, and the others watch as Kanpo changes into Choji, who finishes his sentence explaining his regeneration. In the Great One's cave, the Doctor comes face to face with her and sees that she is a gigantic spider. He shows her the crystal, but begs her to spare Earth and the humans on Metabilis. The Great One mocks him and says that nothing will stand in her way, and demands that he hand over the crystal. She tells him it is the final part of a large crystal mound in the roof above them, which she says will allow her mental powers to grow exponentially until she can control the entire universe. The Doctor tells her it is far too dangerous and she will die as a result of the energy buildup, but she ignores him. She points out that his body is dying due to the radiation in the cave, but says that he will see her triumph before he dies. She then telekinetically takes the crystal from his hand and inserts it into the mound despite his protests. She initially relishes in the power, but soon calls out for help as she starts to burn up as a result of the energy feedback. The Doctor flees from the cave and goes to the TARDIS. 
Meanwhile, the spiders begin to die from the feedback through their link that they share with the Great One, freeing Arik and the rebels, as well as Barnes and the others. Three weeks later, Sarah Jane goes to the doctor's lab where she is joined by the brigadier. He tells her to try not to worry about his long absence, explaining to her that he once didn't see the doctor for months and when he did come back, he had regenerated. Suddenly, they hear the sound of the TARDIS materialising and they watch as the doctor staggers out of the door. He says that he got lost in the vortex but then collapses to the ground. Sarah Jane asks why he went back when he knew the risk but he says he needed to face his fear. She tearfully begs him not to die but he tells her not to cry before passing away. She shares a moment of silence with the brigadier but they are shocked when Choji suddenly materialises in the lab. Choji reassures her that he is not dead and that he will help speed up the regeneration process as the damage to the doctor's body was quite significant. He warns them that his behaviour after the change might be a bit erratic and he then vanishes from sight. Sierra Jane then tells the Sierra Jane tells the Brigadier that the process has started as they watch as the Doctor changes into a younger man, this time with brown curly hair. End of the story. Big good. Big good. Thank you. And on a personal note, I'm quite happy that this season is ending because the episode structure going forward changes. So there will be only one six-parter per season going forward. Hooray! Hurrah! So that is the end of John Pertwee's last story. So we're better to drown our sorrows than in the trivia spot. <laughs> Suit us, Trish. Suit us. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the air date for this story is the 4th of May through to the 8th of June, 1974. The writer for this is Robert Sloman. This is the final story written by Robert. His previous writing credits were The Demons, which he and Barry Letts did under the pen name of Guy Leopold, Mm -hmm. The Time Monster, and The Green Death, both also with Barry Letts. Robert said he wasn't very happy with the story, claiming he was kind of cleaned out of ideas, which may explain why he didn't write any more for the show after this Mm. point. The director is Barry Letts. This is directing credit five of six for Barry. His previous directing credits were The Enemy of the World. He also directed several episodes of Inferno, Terror of the Autons, and Carnival of Monsters. We will see his directing work once more in The Android Invasion. Though not credited, Barry did also write the story with Robert Sloman. uh, And this is the only Doctor Who story to be written and directed by the same person. No. As with most of Barry's stories that he sort of wanted to do just for the fucking shits and giggles of it, there is no on-screen producer credit for Barry in the story. They don't allow him to be credited as producer and director. It's one or the other. This is the only story that Barry has directed while also serving as producer that wasn't written by Robert Holmes, which I just realized when I read about. Hmm. Barry saw this story as a Buddhist parable. The Doctor must become a new man by destroying his own ego. Which is a very Barry way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I was talking to Paul recently from ha- uh, mm. our good friends Paul and Dan from Half Measures. But um, I, I, I have a tendency, I think, I think we both have a tendency to mm. say, like, whenever we come across something that one of us says, we say, yeah. we'll, oh, I'll say that for the overall. So like oh that, yeah, Paul, Paul messaged me that he's been doing that in real life. Yeah, he's a, so Paul's doing that in real life. So I'm like, oh, that's a good T-shirt idea. I'll save it for the overall. <laughs> yeah, um, no, we were saying that to Yeah, so there are points hi, that you. Yeah, hi, Paul. <laughs> so uh, like, yeah, I think there's one or two things you said there which I will save for the overall. 
Um, this story was the first to actually use the term regeneration to describe mm-hmm. the change that Time Lords undergo when they change their physical appearance. And it is the first time we see someone other than the Doctor regenerate. Because we see Campbell and Bushy do it. It's true. Also, I never pegged it at the time. And I don't know if you have it in your mm-hmm. notes later. It's also technically the first time a regeneration has changed ethnicity. I didn't have it in my notes. You're meaning... Because Choji has done a lot more... Kevin Lindsay performs it as almost like as if he's portraying an Asian person. Yes, Whereas the guy playing Kenpo, uh, there's, there's nothing really Asian about his portrayal of the character. Yeah, I didn't really see it that way. I just figured that Kenpo was old. Um, mm. And so he spoke slower and clearer. Because so, a lot of what comes across in Choji is the accent. Yeah, and I... I, I no, it could be me just seeing stuff yeah. that isn't there but I, I, I just think, think that uh, Kevin Lindsay's performance as Choji leaned more towards an Asian portrayal of a character I thought Kempo was meant to be Asian as well so maybe, maybe that's just a difference of opinion it, it might be a difference of opinion but, but he does, like, I would say like that his, his speaking and his appearance isn't as pronounced as Choji's no so that, that's what I basically I was gonna go like all those people that say that you know, that have been giving out about current regenerations that we've seen in the modern era. Mm. It's a case of like what fuck off. It was back then as well. <laughs> so the reprise in episode six. Mm. There are scenes in the reprise of episode six that weren't actually in episode five, which is weird because usually it just picks up like maybe the last minute, maybe two minutes of the end of the previous episode. Barry did explain why he did this. So, originally, all of these scenes were shot for part five, but he felt that the special effects backgrounds didn't work really well, so he cut them. However, then part six was running short, so he put them back in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which, do you know what? I I know you and I were talking about this uh, off air. I don't mind that we see extra stuff in part six that we didn't see in part five. I think that the length of the reprise is exceptionally long. Mm. Um, But I don't mind that we see different parts because I'm not a big fan of the reprise just being stuff we've seen already. I like the fact that in this reprise, we see what conversations were happening while the other stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. So we get to see stuff we hadn't seen before, which makes the reprise more interesting. Um, but it's a bit weird. Yeah, I think for descriptive purposes, like I, I, because I had to like hatch it yeah. to like to make sense, because it didn't really make sense for me to kind of go, oh, they go to Campo's room and then the guys appear and they attack Tommy. Whereas like, and then I go to episode six and it's like, oh, they break out of the cellar and they go to attack Tommy and it's like, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Um, this story does have a huge chase scene, which I will leave for my overall, um, <laughs> which includes Bessie. The Who-mobile, the Who-mobile in the sky, a police car, a gyrocopter, a hovercraft, and a boat. This was a gift from Barry Letts to John. Mm. Basically saying, it's your last story. You like chase sequences. He apparently had seen a hovercraft and a boat show and he wanted to try it. And so Barry was like, do you know what? It's your last story, John. Have fun. We're going to take up half a fucking episode <laughs> with you going in a gyrocopter and the Whomobile. I'm going to make the Whomobile fly. And then you're going to go on like a hovercraft. 
and it's gonna be fun. Every time I see the effects for the the hover, you know, the Hoomobile flying, all I can think is the end of Greece. <laughs> we go together. <laughs> um, as an additional way of making this, you know, final story of John special, Barry deliberately put together a cast which largely consisted of his friends, so people who worked really well with John, guest mm. performers that John got along really well with, and it was really just a big party for John in many ways. Yeah. Originally Joe was meant to be in the story. Um she doesn't actually appear on screen. She is in the novelization. The whole there's a prologue, it's all about her and Cliff and the Amazon and the natives getting restless with the crystal and basically telling her to get rid of it. Um but she was actually meant to be in it as well. And there's actually a nice little there's a nice little call out to someone that was one of John's close friends that I'll get to later on when I talk about the cast. Okay. You know the iris machine, uh, the way it shows uh, the Drashigs from Carnival of Monsters? Originally, that was meant to show footage from the Green Death, um, but Barry thought that the Drashigs were more scary, which I agree. Drashigs are way more scary than maggots. Yeah. The phrase, where there's life, there's hope, which the Doctor says to Sarah Jane, is a quote from Cicero. Hmm. Tommy's story is a similar one to a number of stories that people have sort of seen in the past. Um, the more sort of direct comparison is with the novel Flowers for Algernon, which is a story of a mentally challenged man whose intellect is artificially boosted to genius levels. The difference is that in that story, the character regresses. And in this story, Tommy doesn't. He maintains his mental boost, as it were. Mm. Um, and it remains permanent without any drawbacks which is great mm. there's lots of big giant spiders in this yeah so if you're arachnophobic maybe not uh do you know who's arachnophobic <laughs> elizabeth Sladen. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't enjoy having the very large spider on her back and she tells a story about how when they were doing the scenes with the large spider on her back at one point they broke for tea and everyone just walked away and left her there <laughs> with this giant thing on her back. And she was like, get it off. Get it off. Like, obviously it's fake and she knows it's fake, but yeah. like, get it off now. Robert Sloman, who wrote the story, is also arachnophobic. <laughs> like, I'm not, I, I'm not terribly arachnophobic, but when something is of a size that it should not be by natural yeah. fucking standards, no. Yeah, I mean, this is one of two stories in Doctor Who which features giant spiders. Mm. I find them both disconcerting from that perspective. Yeah. Um, and I'll get to my overall when we're talking about the spiders themselves. But um, yeah, no, it's not good. We're going to have to keep mentioning Paddy because it's what the story. No, 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 are. no. My, my mind got into stuff that I don't like, and now I have fucking cephalopods in my head, and I fucking I hate cephalopods. How the fuck did your brain get there? I don't. I recently watched a video about a cuttlefish, and I, they, they fucking terrify me. Okay. Random leap. You well, like no, like it was like stuff that people are afraid of. Like you know that I'm terribly yeah. afraid of one particular animal, and then yeah, these which are I, fuck- I've deliberately not mentioned. I know, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, the main spider had a nickname, which in today's world is even funnier. The spider's nickname was Boris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not after the current prime minister of the UK, obviously, uh, but after the Who's son, Boris the spider. Which makes sense. For the Great One, who I thought was done very well. Yeah. Uh, originally, the design was 
a five-foot spider with red eyes, which appeared to breathe by means of an artificial bladder. Hmm. And Barry thought it was too scary and decided just to do the queen spider, but just bigger with CSO. Yeah, like, that would be, like, I think, for the most part, the spiders are very static. Like, obviously, like, there's, like, a little bit of vibration to kind of simulate some sort of movement. But I think if you have their sack. Yeah. Kind of. Breathing. Breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're kind of erring on the side of, like, shit your pants territory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, future producers probably would do. But Barry was like, nope. (laughs) That's fucking freaky. And, like, the fact that it's a giant spider, there's something very Lovecraftian about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Which I think yeah, adds, and so. it's also called the Great One. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Terence said on the commentary that there's a particular reason why the Brigadier is present for the Doctor's regeneration, which was done on purpose, because <laughs> they didn't want to have to repeat what happened in Spearhead from Space. <laughs> so have the Brigadier there. He knows exactly what's happening. Mm. Move on. Um, the Brigadier's line of "Well, here we go again," though that was an ad lib <laughs> by Nick. He's good with the ad-libs. <laughs> he is. He's very, first, Nick is really good with his ad-libs, all right. Yeah. Interestingly, even though like the story is kind of like a big goodbye to John, um, mm. for several people, it was actually a really sort of busy uh, production mm-hmm. um, because they were also recording parts of Robot yeah. at the same time. So not only were John Pertwee and Tom playing the Doctor at the same time, but... Liz and in some ways Nick and John Levine had to rush back and forth between the two productions so doing rehearsals and whatever which I imagine maybe kind of took from the whole celebrating John thing a bit because they're running back and forth like yo-yos. I'll get into a little bit more on that next week in terms of how that impacted Liz's setup with Tom Mm -hmm. because it did kind of I wouldn't say it hindered it but had an impact on that a little bit but it is interesting that like they were filming the next actor while John was still there. Yeah, because like, I suppose like previously it was a case of the seasonal breaks really helped with mm. stuff because you, there was no real kind of continuity as such. Yeah. Um, and also they, there wasn't an on-screen changeover. So Yeah, because like when Hartnell changed into Troughton, it was in the middle of a season. So that was part of the yeah. natural shooting block. And then when Patrick changed they hadn't cast john yet yeah yeah um so tom baker does appear for like what five seconds at the end of this story he is uncredited at that point and is the first time since william hartnell changed into patrick that we do see the regeneration the handover on screen even though it's Mm -hmm. done a slightly different way Mm -hmm. this is also richard franklin's final appearance as mike outside of cameos and audio adventures we will see him again in a couple of appearances but Nothing major going forward. One of the characters we're going to be discussing when we talk about Robot is a man by the name of Harry Sullivan. Mm. Who, I've made many comparisons over the years between Paddy and Companions and Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> Jamie's a big one, you mm-hmm. know. There are times when Paddy's a bit of a Harry as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully only in the best ways and not the fucking bad ways. Oh yeah, you know, in the buckets ways like that. Yeah. Though Harry doesn't appear on screen in this story, he is mentioned. The Brigadier phones down for the medical officer and he does refer to that person as Sullivan. Mm. 
yeah. thereby setting up the upcoming character of Dr. Harry Sullivan. Let's talk about our cast, shall we? Yes. So as Tommy, we have John Kane. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for John. This is actually a very funny story that goes along with John. Or with John in this role. So um, John came from a sort of a theatre background and he often ad-libbed and stuff like that. So when he was taking a taxi to BBC, Television Centre for his first day, he wanted to get into the character of Tommy. So he basically pretended that that's who he was. (laughs) And so the entire there, he was like, take me to where they make those television programmes. He's going to see his friend, Doctor Who, and basically had this full-on conversation about his friend, quote-unquote friend, Mm. Doctor Who. And when they arrived at Television Centre, the taxi driver went to speak to the security guard (laughs) and was kind of like, look, I have this guy in the car. He thinks he's coming to meet his friend, Doctor Who. And the security guard basically said that, look, you know, Doctor had left in his TARDIS and he wasn't there but would wave to him next time he was on TV. Oh! And the driver offered to take Kane back home. <laughs> Which is the most cringeworthy and also, like, adorable thing ever. Yeah, get that amount of BAFTA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, can you imagine, like, you're going through all this, and apparently like, he was trying to just sort of play the character, but he was making him really, really anxious that, like, the taxi driver was buying into it a little bit too much. Yeah. And so he had to like insist on staying to the taxi driver, then obviously explain to the guard exactly who he was and stuff. Um, John's non-who credits include The Adventures of Black Beauty, Zed Cars, The Dick Emery Show, Love's Labour is Lost, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Foil's War. Campo Rinpoche is played by George Cormac. This is the second and final Doctor Who appearance for George. We previously saw him as Dalios in The Time Monsters, or Dalios, however we decide to pronounce my name. Joji, and later Campo, um, <laughs> uh, is played by Kevin Lindsay. So, second of three Doctor Who stories for Kevin. We previously saw him as Lynx in The Time Warrior, and we'll see him again in The Sunflower Experiment. Mm-hmm. As Lupton, we have John Darth. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for John. He's coming up a lot. Um, though he was previously um, in The Green Death, he was uncredited. He did the radio voices and some of the mechanical voices. Gotcha. His non-who credits include The Adventures of Robin Hood, Dixon of Doc Green, The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, Emergency War 10, The Avengers, Zed Cars, and Sophie Sophie. Basically the entire bingo card there for John. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> John passed away in 1984. As Barnes, we have Christopher Burgess. This is the third and final appearance for Christopher. We previously saw him in The Enemy of the World and Terror of the Autons. His non-who credits include North and South, Treasure Island, Jossie's Giants, County Hall, the Growing Pains of PC Penrose, and once again, Zedkars. Christopher passed away in 2013. Now, on to the spiders. So, Lupton's spider, as I refer to her, mm-hmm. uh, is voiced by Isan Churchman. This is the final credit on screen for Isan. She previously provided the voice of Alpha Centauri in both Peladon stories. The Spider Queen is voiced by Kismet Delgado. This is the only Doctor Who credit for Kismet. Her non-Who credits include Dixon of Doc Green, The Three Princes, and The Alien Sky. Now, I mentioned that there's a little bit of a connection for John in terms of acting with people that he was friends with. Kismet was married to Roger Delgado. Hmm. So, in a way, Roger was kind of there in spirit. Yeah. Kismet passed away in 2017. 
Lastly, the great one is voiced by Maureen Morris. This is her only credited Doctor Who role, though she did have an uncredited appearance in the Macro Terror. Her non-Who credits include The Moonstone, the 1988 version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Nicholas Nickleby, Coronation Street, Emmerdale and Zedkars. Now, this story was the final regular appearance for John Pertwee as the third Doctor and introduced Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor. We will talk about Tom next week. But let's talk about John's departure. So, John cited in interviews two main reasons why he left the show. One, Barry Letts was leaving. Barry had been the producer for the entire time John was there and he felt very well taken care of under Barry. And also the death of Roger Delgado, who had played the master. Elizabeth Sladen has also suggested in interviews that he would have stayed for more money, but the BBC said no. So, a little bit of Barry was leaving, Roger had passed, you know, the unit stories were becoming fewer and far between, so he wasn't seeing the old gang as much. He went to ask for more money and they said no, so he said, you know what, call it a day. He would return to the role of the Doctor on screen in The Five Doctors. He was also in the TV short Dimensions in Time. And he also did a number of BBC audio stories that also starred Elizabeth Sladen and Nicholas Courtney. John's credits after leaving the show include, and I, I included these specific ones just because I find it funny how much things come up again. Wurzel Gummidge, hmm. The Little Green Man, Super Ted, Wurzel Gummidge Down Under, The Further Adventures of Super Ted, <laughs> and then he was in The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones, Attack of the Hawkman. Uh, he's also in a thing called like Who Done It, which is like a murder mystery game show. He's the <laughs> presenter of it, which like I need to find episodes of because I just want to see it. <laughs> uh, John passed away in his sleep at the age of seventy six from a heart attack while he was on holidays in Connecticut. He was cremated, and he had a I think I've mentioned this before. He had a Wurzel Gummidge model affixed to his coffin, following the instructions outlined in his will. Uh, one thing I will say is I've seen a lot of clips online. Um, John was very much, you know, into the convention experience and stuff like that. He went to conventions a lot. So does Patrick. Mm-hmm. Um, and he clearly like lived for the role. Do you know, like he loved being the doctor. He loved talking to people as the doctor and stuff like that, which is always great to see. Like we didn't have that opportunity with William Hartnell, but I think he probably would have been the same. Absolutely. Like I've seen. I, I don't know like like where it's coming from. I suppose maybe it's the advent of stuff like Britbox, but I'm seeing a lot more appreciation for the William Hartnell years of Doctor mm. Who, and I'm seeing a lot more stuff people where people are noticing like articles where he was on about how much he loved the show and like just like attending events and like really making it special for kids that would meet him. So like, we're kind of tree for tree in the sense of people that take on the role that they treasure it and it's not just like you know oh it's something to make my name off of it's like you're a custodian of something you know yeah i think it's something that a lot of maybe newer who fans you know maybe wouldn't be aware of because sadly a lot of the the Mm. first three um classic doctors have passed away um but it's nice to like said we're three for three on that um and that will continue which is which is good to know yeah um having met the five that come next they're all very good um actually one thing i love watching every so often it's an interview with john and terry wogan um Mm. and because like this is when john was doing like his um i 
think it was like the later stuff of his like Wurzel Gummidge days and things like that. Mm. But like, it's just so funny. Like he is an amazing like vocal performer. Like you know, all the yeah. different accents and stuff he puts on, and it's really funny. And like, you can clearly tell like that. No, I suppose much like the other two was that the role doesn't define him. Like he has done other stuff, but yeah. he is still very attached to the role. Yes. And still very appreciative of it, I think, and oh. what it did for his career and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so. Absolutely. So, thank you very much for that, as always. The trivia spot is great. Um, so how about we move on? Now, I can never remember how we do this. No, I Obviously, I know that this is the comp- the, the character discussion part. I know that. Like, so we discuss the Doctor, the companions, the prominent characters, and the villains. So this week, we have the Doctor. We have Sarah Jane. We have the Brigadier to an extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Yates. Uh, we also have uh, prominent characters of Tommy, Choji, slash Campo. Mm-hmm. And then we have the villains of Lupton, Barnes, and then the Spiders, which we will mm-hmm. be discussing. Thing. Now, the doctor we normally discuss first. Do we leave yeah. him till the end because it is his farewell story? I can't remember what we did for Patrick because it was so long ago. How about yeah. we still discuss him first? Because usually we discuss the departing companion last in the companion yeah. section. Yes. Um, but let's let's just start off with him. So why don't you go first there with your thoughts on on the doctor in this one? So I overall I think John like did this very well. I think this is a really good mm-hmm. performance from John because. We've seen two regenerations now, mm. right? And it's the first time we've actually seen the Doctor react to facing their own untimely demise. Because mm. with William Hartnell, he like he acknowledged the fact that my body's wearing a bit thin, like so. It's you know, it's I won't say like that. It was like on you know, it's unexpected or anything like that. But it's like I have lived a certain, a very very long time. Yeah, and he was just kind of raging against the dying of the light at that stage, and obviously with uh, Patrick Jones' uh, regeneration, it's it's forced upon him, mm. you know, through by the Time Lords. Whereas here, it's like the Doctor has to come face to face like with his own mortality. Yeah, and he he like he does it beautifully. Like the last two episodes of this are like some of the like I think this are I think in John's performance, the last two episodes are the strongest part of his performance for the story. Like, I would agree. I think it's a good performance overall, but the last oh, yeah. two are definitely yeah. no, no, I agree. a whole like, different level. Like, because like the first episode when he's talking to Clegg and he's reading the letter from Joe, which is great. Um like the the as the story progresses, his interactions with the other characters are really good, like in the Brigadier, mm. the interaction with Sarah Jane, I really like. But it's the last two which is like facing his fate, especially when he realizes who Kenpo is and like Kenpo is kinda of like, you know, it's time. Mm. It's it's great because one thing that we've said multiple times, we love seeing a foe that the doctor can't physically or scientifically outsmart or beat. Mm. The great one is too powerful. And he even knows like, like, like she makes him march around in a circle like a puppet, despite yeah. despite his best efforts to resist. And we've seen him resist some like amazing like machines and powerful things. Mm. But the great one is up there with the likes of the animus from the the web planet yeah. or uh who else like them that weird fucking the mind of evil type thing you know yeah um 
so fighting against that was brilliant um i liked his final goodbye to sarah jane because mm. i'm pretty sure it's the same thing like where he says like a tear sarah jane there's no need to cry which is what he had said to her when he woke up in paladin yeah it's a t- really nice callback to that yeah um sort of saying like you know it's very sweet do you know that he's sort of acknowledging her and trying to comfort her yeah even at the very end he was still trying to um the i think there's there's only one thing that i'm mad at him for in this entire story and it's i really wish he told benton you're not expendable because benton says like well shouldn't i go first doctor i mean like i am expendable and he like though the doctor says like i don't want to risk a second life Mm. but it's like come on man like after everything he's done for you, you know, you can all, you can you not just say you're anything but expendable? Yeah. Um I kinda wish the break had t- piped up on that one as well. Um originally um in one of your lists of characters you had Benton mentioned. So I'll just say right now, the one line I had for Benton was Benton, you're not expendable, don't you fucking dare I, say I, that. I was the same. <laughs> yeah, that line I was just going I just fucking co opted into like the doctor. Yeah. Um but yeah, no, I'd agree. Look, I, I think I really liked the Doctor in this story. Hmm. Barry and Robert did a great job presenting who the third Doctor was at his core. Mm-hmm. We get the science Doctor. We get mm-hmm. the very caring and compassionate Doctor. We get the Venusian Aikido Doctor. We also get the Doctor who doesn't really pay attention all the time to what people mm-hmm. are talking about. Yeah. The only thing that was missing was some bluster at the Brigadier going in all guns blazing. Only because there was no Brigadier going in all guns blazing in this no. story. Like he didn't, he didn't even get mad at him when the brigadier shot in the direction of the Who mobile. Yeah, there is one thing I still want to be like. Can I still give out to him for making Sarah think he was dead several times in one story? Like, given that he actually does die at the end of it, but like, she thought he was dead several times. Like when he got hit on the planet with the electricity or whatever mm-hmm. everyone kept trying to tell her that he was dead that he was dying or whatever then obviously he didn't return and she convinced herself that he was dead and then he turned up and then he died like that poor woman's emotions are shot to shit like so okay with the first one he is so fucking weak that he can barely tell her how to like revive him I th- I think he I think you can kind of forgive him for not being probably, but like just given the fact that last week he also did this to her three times, and this time he did it to her three times again. I'm like Jesus Christ, man. Um, but no, that that's just me having yeah. having a bit of a, a bit of a joke. Um, I had forgotten that the Great One mind controls him. I remembered the ring ring or the half a pound of topping rice, half a pound of treacle thing. Yeah. The using Sarah Jane's voice. I remembered all of that. I had forgotten his no i won't thing and you and i have mentioned before that there is a sarah jane smith audio series that big finish has done Mm -hmm. and one of our favorite stories from that series is test of nerve yeah and in it there's a moment where a character uh, a disabled character is basically left on the floor to die if she cannot drag herself out of what is going to be a burning building yeah and it's very very well done um it's sadie miller who's elizabeth Sain's daughter and what she repeats over and over again is i will not be your victim and it's such a powerful moment and i got such major vibes of that in john's performance him constantly saying no i won't 
no, I, even as he's doing it, he's still trying to fight it. I thought it was so well done. And like, another thing is like, I have been kind of, I've been critical of the way that John sometimes ham, hams up the the struggle face, you mm. know, he has, because the eyes will bulge out and it's slightly comedic. Yeah. Here, no, he plays it perfectly. Yeah. Like, he, his expressions in the whole lot is absolutely perfect. And I would say that, like, in keeping with, like, he's kept in with a lot of traditions with, uh, with Doctor Who. I think he is kept in with the tradition of a strong final performance for a Doctor's regeneration sequence or a Doctor's mm. final story. But I will say that this is the best performance by the Doctor in a regeneration story because of the fact that it is him facing his fear and his own death. I would, I would agree. Like that was like it was absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um I do also love and you know I know that this will probably you know, probably one of the reasons why fans of, you know, the current uh, era of the show get a bit up in arms about the Doctor's history or whatever. I do love this glimpse we get into the Doctor's past. Mm-hmm. What he was like as a child. Yeah. I love that. I love the way Campo treats him. I love the relationships they have together. I think it's absolutely fabulous. Overall, like I said, I think this is a fantastic performance from John. Mm-hmm. And definitely of the regeneration performances i think it's the one that hits the most Mm -hmm. because while you may not know going into it when you watch it in its entirety you sort of realize it was building to an inevitable conclusion absolutely yeah and it builds really well whereas in war games it comes out of fuck off nowhere yeah that he's going to be regenerating, and obviously similarly um, in Ten Planet. So no, I, I agree. It's, it's it's a fantastic performance. So should we go on to the survivors? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have Sarah Jane and the Brig, and, and Yates. Uh, Yates. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now, and Good Boy the... Benton, who you know is Good Boy Benton. Yeah, we, we, we'll to... just we'll just say Good yeah. Boy Benton. Yeah, he's good the best boy. boy. Um, Sarah Jane, investigative journalist, can't really take a hint. (laughs) (laughs) Although, in fairness, all Mike had to do was actually introduce her properly to them by name, and she probably would have caught on fairly fucking lively. Um, I really like Sarah in this one. Um, not least because it has one of my favorite outfits of hers, which I I know people are like, you're obsessed with her clothes. I am obsessed with her clothes. It has one of my favorite outfits. I love the stripy top and the slacks and the cardigan. Um, but similar to the Doctor, we get all of Sarah's best stuff. Mm-hmm. We get her investigating, we get her being compassionate, we get her being scared shitless, mm-hmm. and we get her being incredibly brave. Yeah. Um, all the hits, all the way down the line. Um, I think my one of my favourite moments is when she and the Doctor are playing word games in the larder, <laughs> as it was. Yeah, oh, that was that Mainly was because she was shitting it before he arrived. Mm-hmm. And now he's there, and she's kind of like, do you know what, at least... At least he's here with me. Do you know? Yeah. Um, her back and forth with Mike, I actually quite liked. I'll talk about that more when we talk about Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, her straight play on like, is this really my life? She's like, I can't believe I'm standing here talking about how they summoned a spider 
into a room, yeah. using meditation. Like, what the hell is my life? I love because she plays it completely straight mm. and just lays it out that this is bonkers. You know, which is just it's done so well. Um, and her reaction to the gen- the regeneration, like when 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 Campo appears and the brigadier is like, "Are you going to introduce me?" And then she's like, "This is Choji. No, it's Campo. Well, it it was Campo, and now <laughs> he looks like." Cho- and the brigadier is like, "That clears up everything." Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, and her reaction to the regeneration is like it's probably one of the one of the most clipped bits of Sarah Jane that you see in montages and stuff. Yeah. Um, is her reaction to that. So I think Sarah Jane, again, killer performance in this, absolutely fantastic. And a good a good companion performance in a regeneration story. Mm. Yeah. Because those are often as important, if not more important, than the doctor's performance in many ways. Because again like I would say that this is the first of what people would come to um, associate with a regeneration story. Mm. Okay. Because again, with the first one, we don't really know what's, what's happening. You know, it's not, it's not building towards us. Okay. We've never seen it obviously. So there's no, there's no impendingness to the Mm. regeneration. With the second one, it's up until the last moment, you think that they're all going to go off into the sunset together. You know? Whereas here it's like, you know, like someone has to witness the moment, you know, mm. and uh, speaking of witnessing it, I have thoughts on the Brigadier in that capacity as well. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree with you that this is a really good performance uh, from Sarah Jane. There's, there is, there's nothing new, which isn't a bad thing. Mm. Obviously, as you say, we get the great hits. I love her interactions with Tommy. Me too. I'm, I will admit, I was a small bit torn over... You know, when she's like, oh, we're playing a game. The game is called Secrets. And I'm like, is it taking advantage of him? To an extent, it probably is. It is. But. It is, but in a. How to put it? In a purely non-callous way. Yeah, like it's it's taking advantage of him for the, for the, the lawful good, shall we say. Yeah. Do you mean it's explaining something to him at a level that she thinks he'll understand. Yeah. And while I, I suppose like it is technically using him when she next sees him, she like, she go, Oh, absolutely. You know, I like, I have to be back quickly, but I will go with you to you know, get the present yeah. you want to give me. Type thing. I think like of everyone bar like Choji and Kempo, Kempo. Yeah. Who obviously treat him like an employee because he is. Yeah. But they also treat him like a person. I think Sergeant probably treats him the most like a person. You can tell that Mike is irritated by him yeah, straight yeah. off the bat. Which okay, Mike is under a lot of pressure in that moment, right? You know, it it's not an overly bad thing. Um but she immediately speaks to him at his level, is patient with him, is kind to him. You know, when she's saying that she's going to the cellar, you know, she repeats things as he needs them to be repeated. Yeah. You know, she doesn't just shout something and run. She stays for as long as she can, repeating to him, tell Mike Lupton is in the cellar. And I, and she's very clear and very, like, methodical with it, which I think is very good. Yeah. No, like, it's, it's, like she, that's the thing. That's what I was going to say. She treats him like a person. Mm. Yeah. Which is good, like, because obviously with characters and people like Tommy, 
they are people. That's the thing. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. So, shall we... Dance? No. Yeah. Well, obviously, because we're in a different place. Cool. So, the Brigadier? So, Doris, huh? Yes. Wonder if we'll ever hear about her again. Also, what would she think of the if of the brigadier and the belly dancer? Mm. I actually loved where he was like, I'm thinking of like put some of those exercises into the the, tra- the training for the men. <laughs> um, we often say like, oh, this is a typical brig being brig story. I would say this is a typical Alistair story. Yes, because other than the one scene where he's going to stop um, Lupton, yeah. He doesn't go in guns blazing. He's not really being his bustly self that he often is or whatever. Um, but he's very much Alistair at his core. Do you know, his back and forth with Benton, as always, are fantastic. Do you know, like when Benton comes running in, the Brigadier's just have to come in like, Benton. Like, <laughs> you can imagine he's like, one of these days, one of these days, he's going to say something. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him, but for now, I'm just going to help him learn. Do you know, it's like this father-son dynamic into them. Yeah. Uh, trying to sound like he knows what he's talking about, even when he doesn't. ESP is extrasensory per- perception, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the way he's willingly accepted Bessie as a chase vehicle. Mm. And doesn't like go to run to get a jeep or anything. He's like, yeah, Benton, move over. And not only does he accept it as a vehicle. He wants to be the one to drive. <laughs> I'd say he knows about the turbo boost. <laughs> I'd say so. And also, like, at the end, like he allows Sarah on the base, unescorted, even when the doctor isn't there. Which is very sweet. So I think we get typical Alistair in this yeah. story, which I really like. I agree. No, the, fir- the first half, for the first half, we get the Brig. The second half, we get Alistair. Mm. Um... My main thought about him in this, and it's got nothing to do, I suppose, with his performance. It's got everything to do with the decision of uh, Barry to have the Brigadier be there to witness the regeneration. Mm. It's an amazing touch to have someone familiar with the concept of facing a change in the Doctor to be present there for Sarah Jane. Oh, very much so. Because she is freaked out of her mind. And like he tries to go like I didn't see him for months. He came back, completely different face. You know, just like <laughs> he tries to make like he know like he's worried as well. He really yeah. is. like you can you know that he's worried, but he try he again he's the leader of men or he's the leader of his people and he views Sarah Jane as one of his people, and just I know. Whether it was probably, I don't know if that was their intention. Obviously, they say, "Look, it's a it's a time saving measure that we don't have to fucking explain everything." It's like mm. playing a new Assassin's Creed game again. You know, like you have to learn all the fucking skills through some arcade. Or the beginning of every God of War, he somehow lost all his powers. How the hell did that happen? After exactly, them all, back up again. all the fucking arcade bullshit of going to go through it again. But I I wonder, like, if there was like the the other intention of having someone be familiar with the process, be there for the companion as such, you know. I don't. I don't know if it was intentional. I think. It, I think it's nice, though. Yeah. To your point, and I love the way that he is with her because he's like such an awkward dad. Yeah. Of like, he doesn't quite know how to comfort her, but he really wants to. <laughs> there, there. Oh, you're very sad. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> he's like you, know, like the fact that he's like you. Know, I'm sure he'll be fine. He wants you know disappeared for months, and but then it goes into awkward dad of 
and came back with a different face. Mm. But yeah, no, I'm sure he's fine. Yeah. I'm sure he's grand. <laughs> uh, came back with a different face. I was about a foot taller. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so shall we go on to the I suppose the other actual companion of the story who is Yates yeah why don't you go first right because I have thoughts on Yates okay. well 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 it looks like I finally have something nice to say about you um, I think this is kind of a shit sandwich for him though but I'll start off with the good go into the bad and I'll go into the good I really appreciated how he took ownership of the fact that he participated in Operation Golden Age it wasn't like you mm-hmm. know I was convinced by you know whoever was like no, like I played my part in it and I'm trying to come to peace with the fact that I did that, you know? And I can't talk to them because I pulled a gun on them. Yeah, exactly. He's enough fucking cop on to appre- like, appreciate other people's feelings towards that. Mm. I can imagine Benton looking at his scrapbook with the two of them. <laughs> um, here comes the bad part. I didn't like his initial treatment of Tommy. Me neither. You know, it's like, you know, there's always, it's always, it's always something important or it's, you know, just kind of brushing him off to the side. Hmm. But to me, he redeemed himself by trying to save Tommy because he, he obviously couldn't see that Tommy was capable of withstanding the barrage. Hmm. But he pushes him all the way and he takes the fucking hit and he goes down like a sack of bricks. Hmm. But it's that thing of not knowing that someone is, is not in danger. Well, is not in serious danger. Yeah but still going to take that bullet for them. So I think that's that's a further redemption for Mike, in in, mm. in my eyes anyway. like Obviously the character had been trying to redeem himself by going to this meditation center, but in terms of like the fan who has issues with fucking Yates, this is another aspect of that redemption. Mm. A redemption within a redemption, if you will. <laughs> um, I still have issues with Yates as a character. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, this doesn't wipe the slate, like, by all means. No, this doesn't. However, again, kudos for owning what he did in the last story. Mm-hmm. I will say, Mike works really well with Sarah Jane. The two characters work really well together, and they bounce well off of each other. Yeah. And I'm kind of miffed that in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, he was being the super sus skulky guy mm-hmm. and we didn't get to see more of them working together because like he doesn't treat her the same way he treated joe he doesn't belittle her or anything like that he treats her like a grown-ass adult professional person like do you know what i mean yeah um and i think they actually worked really well together and i kind of would have liked to have seen more of it they they did they did work really well together and i think it was and Sorry, I think there probably is some greater respect for Sarah Jane than there is for Joe on his part, mm. because Sarah Jane is a she's a young professional woman. She's a journalist, you know. She's she's Joe was like you know fucking kind of hippy dippy, which obviously yeah. doesn't really. She was generally. also still a young professional woman, but in Mike's eyes, she was a young professional woman whose uncle got her the job. Yeah, exactly. Like so, that's that's the thing, you know. Yeah, but I do think the two of them work really well together. I think they bounce well off of each other. Um, I think an interesting thing for Mike is that he still seems like an outsider at the monastery. I wonder how long he's been there. I didn't pick up on that, and I think the reason why I didn't pick up on it is because we we only see kind of really two groups of other people in the monastery. There's Lupton's crew, 
mm. and it is just a room full of fucking randos. Yeah, but the room full of randos was the group meditation. Yeah. That everyone was meant to attend. And obviously Mike wasn't because he was escorting Sarah Jane. But you kind of get the sense that like the way he interacts with some of the other characters, the way Lupton's group sort of sees him as this sort of interloper in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you get the sense that a lot of the stuff Choji is saying, Mike hasn't heard yet. Yeah. That's... So I just wonder, no, I mean, it's not a bad thing. I just wonder how long he's been there. Um, because given the reason why he went there, feeling like an outsider is probably not helping. Um, I didn't like the way he treated Tommy when he first met him. I think there's a little bit of, you can give him a little bit of leeway in the sense that he's obviously under extreme pressure, right? This is a very serious issue that they're investigating and Tommy just pops up out of nowhere. Um, but I don't, I don't like the way he treats him in reaction to that. It's indicative of the way he treats him in general. Mm-hmm. Like, had he just been like, oh, Tommy, not now. Yeah. You maybe could have forgiven it a bit, but the fact that he's like, it's always something important. Yeah. It's kind of like, what's well, important to Tommy, so don't be a dick. Yeah, because like, I suppose, like, I didn't really do it in the, the recap, but because I think we're going to be moving on to Tommy mm-hmm. now in a while, but Tommy's whole thing is like, he, call, he calls everyone by their last name. Yeah, it's like oh, and it's like you know, Barnes want tea, you know, or you know, mm. look, Yates want tea, or Yates want to see like you know, pretty flower this type of that mm. that that's the childlike side of things. And like when he's when he comes rushing into the room, he's like you know, Yates, Yates, Yates. You know, it's like you know, trying to say you know, the seller, seller, and it's like mm. Lupton, and it isn't until Moss says that Lupton isn't there. It's like oh, Lupton is in the cellar. It's like. Like the doctor no has seen the guy for like fucking five seconds and he knows that he's trying to tell you something important. Like Yeah. Um so I, th- I think the there's a certain bit of leeway you can give, but not too much, you know, yeah. and it does kind of go back to how Mike sees people who he perceives are less intelligent than him. Hmm. Do you know it's you know, how he treated Joe, calling her an idiot and stuff like yeah. that. So um there's that. I think he does get a bit of redemption with Tommy at the end, to your point. I'll get... I may get to this when we talk about Campo. I have a, I have a thing about Tommy and Yates and their ability to withstand the attack from the boys. I don't know if it's going to be under Campo or it might be under the overall. I'll, I'll see when we get to it. Yeah, because, like, I, th- I, I, I know the point that you're trying to make. And... Mm-hmm. For Tommy, I can I get it. Like for but, Tommy, uh, see, hmm. yeah. I'll, I'll get to it later because yeah, okay, it's, it's yeah. a whole thing. Um, yeah. Okay. How about we move yeah. on? To, how about we move on to Tommy, and then we can. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Tommy. Uh, he's very sweet, mm-hmm. a bit of a klepto. Yeah, because like klepto with that is oh, I know he stole the fucking crystal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's he constantly he's a magpie like he's constantly looking for shinies. Yeah, and you kind of get the sense that a lot of the shinies he has in his box, a lot of the pretties, mm-hmm. weren't given to him as a gift. <laughs> no, yeah, I, Sarah I... Jane gave him one as a gift because she's very nice to him. But I think a lot of the others he kind of pilfered. Yeah, he um, probably he probably did. Like he climbed the window to get the crystal. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? He's got some serious klepto tendencies about him. Um. Like it, this is kind of strange, okay? Is that Tommy is like he is a very prominent character, 
in, mm-hmm. in the story. But up, up until the point where his intelligence is boosted by the crystal, there isn't a whole lot of layers to what we can see of the mm-hmm. character. Uh, but one thing that I loved was John Cade's performance because the part of someone remembering or like you know, or not because like we we don't know what Tommy's backstory is, but mm-hmm. being capable of you know reading full sentences like at a at a proper pace, like not having to stumble, it's like the scared happiness, you know, like mm-hmm. like the uncertainty. He did that brilliantly to the extent that like you almost thought he was going to burst into tears over the fact that he was able to actually do the stuff that he'd always wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. like he goes from reading like Ladybird books. He goes into the library and he starts reading everything. He goes like, I still don't understand it. Because <laughs> like, he yeah. can read stuff, he just can't comprehend what it reads. That, that's uh, something that I really loved. I loved how they did that. Yeah. Um, I like that he gradually becomes more capable while not losing who he is either. No. Um, I wouldn't have liked it as much if they just had him instantly be like this uber intelligence. Because you see that sometimes in science fiction shows, you know, and stuff. But even with a dictionary... He still was like, no, I need to talk to to Campo because I don't I don't get it. Like he understand he knows the words he can read them, but he still doesn't understand them. It reminds me of the thing from uh, like it was like the Simpsons, like where Homer reads like a, uh, a you know a how to create your business, how to create your business for dummies, and he reads a certain word in it, and then he has to get the dictionary to read what that word is. It's marketing. He goes like <laughs> he goes like marketing for dummies. Then he just looks up the word marketing, but. Yeah. But I like the way it's gradual, do you know? And it's Tommy learning. He's just learning faster as he goes. I thought that was I have a question for you as well, right, based mm-hmm. on that. So, he never once thinks about, like, he's obviously in a lot of pain when he's being shot with the energy bolts. Yep. But he never thinks once of allowing the others to get past him. Would you do you think he that would still be the same case if he hadn't been boosted by the crystal? Yes, very much so. Tommy, in many ways, reminds me of Hagrid. Yeah, from Harry Potter. Okay, in the sense that Hagrid is one hundred and twenty million percent devoted to Dumbledore. Yes, because of what Dumbledore did for him. Mm-hmm. I could go into a whole thing about how Dumbledore never actually got him his wand back after his proof that he didn't actually release the Basilisk, but that's the yeah. point. Yeah. Um, but he is 100% devoted to Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Tommy, even before his intellect gets boosted, is 100% devoted and protective of Kempo. Yeah. And I think Tommy would have stood there and borne the brunt no matter what, mm-hmm. because you do not interrupt Kempo. Yeah, and if he thought someone was going to hurt Kempo, yeah, fuck no, because he trends he trends to fucking box Yates if he tries to go yeah. upstairs. Like, to even he, see he's him. sort of that like gentle giant type mm. character of like, you know, he comes across as incredibly sweet and innocent, and for the most part he is, but he could also break you. Yeah, something very you know? hold the door, hold door type scenario. Yeah, I so I, I do think he would have been the same otherwise. Um. There was one moment with Tommy that absolutely broke my heart, mm-hmm. um, which is when Barnes is like, can't you read? And he's like, my mother bought me a book. Oh, man. And I was like, my heart just broke. 
because then to see him sitting and again in that very Harry Potter thing in his cupboard under the stairs, yeah, um, reading and it's like a little ladybird book, mm. and like there's there's just something so quintessentially innocent about a ladybird book. Hmm. Do you know? And it just it broke my heart. It was the most adorable thing ever. Um, I, I think yeah, no, it was a great a great job by uh, John Kane. Great job! Oh, fantastic! I think in terms of our supporting cast, it was the best performance for me. Like, yeah, you know, Kevin and stuff is great. It's Choji and, and Campo is great and all that kind of stuff. But John's performance as Tommy for me is really of the supporting cast the best performance. Yeah, of the story, and I think it's the best performance from a supporting cast member we've seen in a while. Probably since da- uh, was it David Dacre in um, Time War as Iron Grand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd agree. I'd agree. Um, and Kevin as... Um, as as, as, uh, as, as, Lynx. as Lynx, yeah, but, yeah. But, since, but since Time War, I think it's probably the best mm-hmm. supporting character performance we've had. Yeah. So, Choji Kenpo. Choji Kenpo. There's a little bit of a Yoda in Choji and Kempo. <laughs> there is, like, especially more so in the Choji uh, variation. Because, like, I, I'll be honest, right? I did find it kind of hard to go along with what Choji was saying because he says everything in mantras and fucking ph- ph- uh, philosophies. Mm. It's like, you know, are you going to the shop? And it's like, you know, the, the death everything was like, going, well, we're all going to the shop in one way, aren't we? It's like, that's not answering the fucking question. <laughs> um, patience. You yeah. must learn patience. Yeah, so there's there's something very Yoda-like about uh, Choji. Um, mm. Whereas like the Kenpo, or Kenpo version is a lot more straightforward. Yes, there's yeah. that like air of like kind of mystery, uh, mystery but it's like, no, man, you're going to die. You better face the fucking music. <laughs> what I actually found very interesting is that, like, obviously we know that the Doctor knew... I think Kempo is his actual name. I think Choji is just the persona. So, yeah, I, you know, we find the Doctor knew Kempo when the Doctor was a child. And then you think about the way Bill Hartnell used to be very impish. I had the exact same <laughs> thing. Like, is that who he picked it up from? <laughs> because, like, obviously they said like that he regenerated when he came to, to Earth. Mm. Or he regenerated before he became he came to her, but the Ken Poe persona reminds me so much of the Hartnell version of the Doctor, like the the way that he tilt the head, like the sort of like you know, I think you're like you know me very well, don't you? Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. like, there, there's something very Hartnell like in the the Ken Poe persona. Yeah. So I, I do kind of wonder if that's kind of where a lot of who. The first Doctor was came I, from. I go retroactively. That is the headcanon. I'm going to assume that he, like the mannerisms, are picked up via that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I would say I do like the Kempo persona a little bit more than Choji. Yeah. Um, no, I think. Agree. I think the Choji persona, which I'm, I'm, I acknowledge is just an extension of Kempo himself. Yeah. Um. Is too trusting, and I don't know if it's that he already knew what Lupton was doing, and he knew that that was the path the Doctor had to follow. And he was just trying to not divert him from that path. Mm-hmm. But like, you kind of want to like smack his head off a wall at some point. Like. Yeah, it is just like, shut up, stop talking. Because <laughs> like, it is like, I get that he is a Tibetan monk. Mm. But can you stop being a Tibetan monk for five minutes? 
<laughs> can you can you not be more like those fucking guys in the abominable snowman? Um, what I think was probably the most interesting thing here is a you know we get more confirmation of the fact that like regeneration is a thing across all time lords. Yeah. Do you know? Um, the Doctor wasn't unique in the fact that he went through this change twice. That it's something that all time lords do. Um, but it also it gives a very interesting hint to what the Doctor could become. And mm. something that we haven't really seen at all since this story, in many ways. Like the ability to astral project a fully interactable version of yourself. Mm-hmm. The ability to teleport. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, are these things the Doctor could do? Or was that the Tibetan, like, was that more through the Tibetan meditation training? Or was that, like, was Kampo always able to do those things? Well, see, this is the thing now, because the Doctor point tells Clegg at the start that the psychic abilities that he he is using are mm. inherent within all humans. It just mm. takes something to be it um, a artificial accelerant. Or be it an actual natural evolution. Hmm. Or like your training, whatever it is. So maybe it might be a case of like that the doc because we do know the doctor has telepathy anyway from learning from Choji or from hmm. Kempo. So maybe that this is something that Time Lords are capable of doing. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that we never to my knowledge, no other doctor ever sort of mentions this we never see this type of thing again and you know maybe it is the fact that Kempo you know secluded himself not only from Time Lord society but kind of from society in general and focused on meditation and focused on oneself rather than focusing on the external there is something similar in terms of a projection or Mm. a a persona of a Time Mm. Lord being coexistent with their current pri- their current form, <laughs> but that's explored later on, and it's not done to the exact same way, and it's not really properly explained. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I I just I love I I love Campo as a character. I like I, I like Campo more than Choji. Yeah. Um. I mean, and yes, I know they're they're the same person, but like I like Campo more. Um, just because he's like this granddad sort of sitting there going, and what are you gonna do? I'm gonna return the thing I took. Yeah. You borrowed it, did you? You borrowed <laughs> it. You found Stole. it. <laughs> Stole my PB. Well, the fact that he literally says, like, I, at least I didn't steal a target. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he, he just calls him naughty as well. Like that's Yeah. It's it's so good. Like it, it's so fantastic. So now the villains. So we have Lupton and Barnes, and then we have the spiders, of which there is Lupton Spider, the Spider Queen, and the Great One. Yeah. So I wouldn't really count Barnes as a villain. Barnes is an unusual character to me because what are his motivations? Barnes says himself that he came to the monastery to find peace of mind. Hmm. And he clears got caught up with Lupton. And Lupton's group. Like, Barnes doesn't want power. He wanted to find a higher 
purpose for himself maybe or something because he clearly doesn't agree with what Lupton is doing particularly once the spiders get involved he wants nothing to do with it but like but like bef- before that like before the, the spiders get involved because clearly he knows that stuff is wrong before the spiders do anything mm. but, but why join up with Lupton like why stay with Lupton I think he stays with Lupton because maybe he cares about him. He's his friend, do you know. Better that he knows what Lupton is doing than he doesn't, do you know. Um, but also, like, the, the way I sort of see it is that Barnes is looking for power in terms of power over oneself. Mm. And he thinks what Lupton is doing is a way to get that. Do you know? Yeah. Like he's looking to unlock this greater power within himself mm. for himself, for his own peace of mind. And he says it himself, like he, he didn't come there to take over the world. He came there for peace of mind. Yeah. Um and I think that's true. I think that's true even to the end. I mean, the Barnes that we see attacking Tommy, that's not Barnes. That's, that's the, spider. the spider controlling him. Yeah. You know, so I wouldn't necessarily count Barnes as a villain. I I think he'd maybe be a prominent character in my book. Yeah. Um, at most, I would say he's a henchman who doesn't really understand what he's doing. Yeah, like, th- th- that's it. It's just like, like I, I was watching it and I was kind of going like, where is your motivation to stay? What, like, what is your motivation to get involved in the first place? And what is your motivation to stay in the group after you realize that Lupton is a bit tapped? Like, mm-hmm. And if you are concerned for him, go to Choji or go to Kenpo and say, look, there's something going on with him. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. Barnes is a bit probably character. Weak-willed, yeah, yeah. You know? I, I think probably um, yeah. See, that's the thing. Like with the weak willness is like I'm not sure if he's someone that I want to try like coaxing to my side. You know, if is he worth the effort of trying to win away from Lupton? Yeah, but also like would like. I think that one of the reasons why he wouldn't turn against Lupton is, you know, this idea of like, but what if him turning Lupton in ended badly and Lupton won mm. and now he's on the other side, do you know? Yeah. And Lupton is going to come after him. Possibly. Yeah, like, yeah I'd say probably character more so, yeah, now that we've had this talk. Mm. But Lupton, uh, definite villain anyway. Oh yeah, power hungry moron. Moron in the sense of like not being fully aware of like what is very evident around him. Yeah. Uh, you were yeah. Something? I was like, I don't know about you, right? But like we've said before, that we're both fans to like you. You probably to a greater extent than I am, mm. fans of the human component of the villain side of the equation, mm. right? Oh, I don't know about you, but for for me, as the story went on, Lupton just really started to fucking annoy me. I... Yeah, like, <sighs> Lupton is one of those human villains where Lupton controlled by the spider is more interesting than Lupton himself. Yeah. Because, like, all right, I get your motivation. You're fucked off that you were let go, you know? Yeah. Um, and you want power to show all those people that you're better than they thought you were and yeah. whatever. But, like, there's... We've talked before about, like, we talked at length about how Iron Grand was a great villain because he mm. was a charismatic fucker. You know, he was yeah. psychotic, but he was also charismatic. 
with Lupton, there's no layers. It's just no. all it's just all ego. And as it goes on, and it, it's his like fucking his own like entitlement and stupidity at you know, as the story goes, especially when he gets the Metabilis tree, it's like can someone please just shut him up? Can, like, can why did he why did he assume he could order the guards around? Because he was a chosen by the spider, you know. Because as far as we know that the guard... Yeah, but they're the personal guard of the Queen. Yeah. It's like what made you think you could tell them what to do? I don't know. Um, like, he he's just he is an idiot. He's an egotistical yeah. idiot. I I think as well, like maybe next time try to be less suspicious and not hint out loud that you tried to kill them. Hmm. Just yeah. you know he kind of went to the Azixir school of being like subtle. <laughs> <laughs> From last week, <laughs> oh. but okay, you know, like this, this, you know, not subtle at all, but just like a very aggressive person. But Jesus Christ, as X here was at least fucking interesting, like you know. <laughs> no, I just like as as it went on, I was just like I was getting really, really annoyed at every time it went back to Lupton. The funniest thing as well is that like when Lupton Spider is like you know the the gyrocopter is like oh it's a basic technology I yeah. will guide your hands. He still puts on his helmet, and mm-hmm. when he gets out of it, he makes sure to take the helmet off and put it nice and safely on the seat. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> oh, Christ. Yeah. Like, I know that there's been characters before that have annoyed me to an extent. Like, I think, going back to the guys from, fuck it, um... The Space Museum? <laughs> not the Space Museum, uh, Carnival of Monsters. Mm. But, like, like, Lupton just really, really fucking irked me. Just like, yeah. To the extent it was like every time he's on screen, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> um, so the spiders of the planet of spiders. Yes. So, so there's have... Lupton spider, mm-hmm. the queen spider, and the great one. Yeah. Lupton spider is is interesting. Like I like now while there isn't a whole lot of variation to kind of go between the re- like Lupton spider and the queen as such like Lupton Spider is is very ambitious and I think their ambition like kind of dulls their intelligence a small bit Mm. Lupton Spider is the perfect match to Lupton as a person (laughs) like those two are very well connected and I wonder if she inherited some of his stupid like she's a sneaky backstabber Mm -hmm. right and she clearly has her own plan. She wants to be queen. You know, which, you know, cool. I get you. You know, that's fine. Good motivation. But, like, how did you expect to get away with not bringing the crystal with you? Yeah. Why are you taking advice from, like, in her mind, this, like, subservient creature mm. that is a two-leg? Well, it doesn't make me wonder, like, had their original plan worked and she'd been able to take over without them realising that they didn't have the crystal, how long would she have kept Lupton alive? Not very long. Dead. Like, <laughs> you know, once power is, you know, power is claimed, dead. You're no use yeah. to me. But, like, and this kind of goes on to the Queen, for me, anyway, because I think the Queen is a bit of a fucking cute whore. The que- I have so many questions about the Queen. Go on. Like, so, you know that all the rest of you, ye all worship the Great One, mm-hmm. right? And you know that the Queen has a direct line to the Great One in the sense mm-hmm. of, 
you know, I will go seek a, I will go seek counsel from the Great One, like in the sense of like uh, I'll pop in and say hi. Yeah, you know, th- so. no, but like, you know, that that type of thing, like you know, like only I can talk to the Great and Powerful yeah. Head type thing. It's like, going, why would you stage a coup against someone that can fucking stop any support going your way by simply mentioning the thing that he all venerates? Like, why, why, yeah. why, why outwardly state, I, why outwardly attempt in a coup without getting the support of the Great One before you do fucking anything? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's why Lupton Spider, as you said, like, is a perfect match. And the Queen is a bit of a cute whore because she leverages her position in accordance with her relationship to the Great One to stop mm. anything. The minute she sees them all, like, the other spiders kind of going, well, you know, maybe she isn't the strongest. It's like, I will go speak to the Great One. It's like, oh, fuck, we gotta wait now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions about her, though. Yeah. Why did she want the crystal? Does she want it for the Great One? Does she want it for herself? Is she against the Great One? Is she with the Great One? Because she says she's going to go talk to the Great One, and then she pulls in Sarah to this like side quest. How much of what she said to Sarah was true? I think what she, I personally think that what she said to Sarah is complete bullshit. Yeah. Because I, much like the spider, to, you know, like fed off Lupton's ambition or like mm. realized it, the queen recognized Sarah's desire to resolve issues yeah and she like i suppose especially after the pet like if the if the memories of peladon are recently in sarah's mind mm. that's like the whole thing with the mining cast and like you know their subservient nature it's like i'll give the humans a forum you know i'll give the two legs mm. a forum to like air their grievances with the way that we treat them absolutely i will if you help me overthrow the big evil it's like mm. i i actually think that yeah, the Spider Queen is playing off those memories. And it's complete manipulation to serve the will of the Great One. Yeah, because the reason why I just have these questions is because she doesn't actually go to see the Great One. No. Now maybe it's because she's afraid if she tells the Great One she doesn't have the crystal, the Great One will squish her like a bug. Appropriately. Yeah. Um, but the Great One is already aware of the fact that the crystal isn't on the planet. It's not mm-hmm. a secret to the Great One. So I was like, she told them she was going to see the Great One. She tells Sarah, they think I'm going to talk to the Great One. I'm not. And it's like, you know, maybe, like, I wonder if, like, I don't think everything she said to Sarah was true. But I wonder if there's bits of it that are true. Like, I don't know if she really wanted to invade Earth. Do you know? She kind of comes across to me as, like, she likes being the queen of her own little fiefdom. Mm-hmm. And she likes the power she has. Yeah. But she's not an idiot either. And I think she knows that, like, with the numbers they have, now obviously they could get more, but with the numbers they have, if they did try to go to battle against Earth, they'd probably lose. Mm. Do you know? So, I don't know. I I had so many questions about her. So many questions. Yeah, because unless she's privy to the grand plan, those are legitimate concerns. Like, if she knows that the grand plan is for the queen's mind to encompass all the universe, then she doesn't have anything to worry about as such. Yeah. So, speaking of the great one, huge, fuck off, giant spider that can control your mind. Mm-hmm. Nope, 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 nope. I'm so glad Barry decided not to go with the breathing, like red-eyed thing. Yeah. I'm. I wouldn't say I'm arachnophobic, right? Mm-hmm. but I don't like them mm-hmm. and if there's one in a room with me I better get the fuck out so yeah, no um, I do think it was very effective that they kept her off screen right until the end 
It's very Jabba the Dalek, or sorry, the Emperor Dalek. Yeah. Um, I thought that was very well done. I thought the whole, like, the the fact that she has so much power that without even meeting the Doctor, she knew everything about him. Mm -hmm. She knew about Sarah Jane. She could impersonate Sarah's voice. She knew that using Sarah Jane would get the Doctor to cross. She knew so much. And, like, the whole idea of, like, playing her like the idea of this giant spider pretending to be Sarah Jane mm-hmm. is just so creepy it's just so wrong but so effective it is and like I, the, the I think that the idea of the great one mm. and the use of the great one is a lot more impressive than the actual great one uh, great ones overall plan shall we say mm. because like as you say like keeping them off screen keeping her off screen until the end fucking brilliant because it it has this impending sense of dread mm. it, it's it's almost like why I think personally the Emperor Strikes Back the original version works better than the updated version because we don't get a proper view of the Emperor until mm. we actually see him in Jedi and it's way mm. more fucking scary then you know um but like so keeping them off screen until the end it's like just fucking masterstroke showcasing the abilities before you see the scope of the thing again Mm. fantastic if they're this fucking powerful off screen christ almighty what do they look like Mm. that being said because you're the smart because you have the biggest brain doesn't mean that you're de facto the smartest person in the room Mm. the doctor pointed out to you like the doctor who you know is a very intelligent person and is very is a fucking very capable scientist. He is warning you about the dangers in your plan. No, is it a case of ego matches the size of brain? I don't know. Or is it that you think you can handle this? Or is it like a dying man trying to fucking convince you to? I, that might be it. Like if she mm. kind of said, like you're dying, like you know. But I would allow you to witness my triumph. So I think hoisted by your own petard is like the best way mm. to describe how that went because. In it actually kind of reminds me in a very very loose way, right? I I don't think you've read it. The original Infinity War comic with Thanos, where no, Thanos is yeah, Thanos essentially becomes one with the universe, mm. and he and the reason why he loses is because he doubts his capability of owning the power that he has taken. That mm. it's not because they're able to fucking physically best him. It's like it's his doubt, his doubt in his ability to control the power is what fucking ends up ends up being it. So like, there's a, I think there's an element of like you know this like, trying to be all encompassing of the universe to that plan, and if you had just paid attention to like what the doctor was saying, you could have actually succeeded in that. Yeah, like I, I agree with all that, but I see that as just making the character more interesting. Oh, like, like you know, I don't, I, I don't like, I don't see it as a negative for the character. I see it as making the character more interesting because like. The thing that I find interesting is that the Doctor sort of explains it in scientific terms. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the Great One is that that spider has been in that cave for hundreds of years. Yeah. And while she may know a lot about the crystals, I don't think she knows a whole lot about technology. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she knows a whole lot about how, like, you know, yeah. feedback loops work. So I think I think to your point, I think it's a case of like ego the size mm. of brain, brain very big, mm. 
not very broad. Yeah, because like if you're capable of reading the doctor's thoughts, you you're like you can you can understand what he's trying to say. But yeah. but but then verse excuse me, maybe it's the whole thing of like I am a god. What do I have to fear from this? Yeah, but there's also a case of like if you if you take the other side of it, so the other person who we see get an ex- an increase in intellect is Tommy, mm. who understands the words. But not what they mean. That's actually a very good point. So, like, the Great One hears the words the Doctor is saying, knows that those are the thoughts that are in his mind, but doesn't understand really what that means. Like, he's saying a feedback loop and it'll destroy me, but, like, what the hell is a feedback loop? He's dying. He's just trying to save himself. Mm, yeah. No, I, I, actually, I didn't think the mirroring of Tommy, and that's actually a good point. Hmm. But yeah, overall, very effective though. Mm, like, yeah, uh, like, I think we can I, both agree that the breathable bladder and the red eyes. Hu- we're, we're glad. We're glad it's not there. Hugely, and I think we can we, we can both agree that it definitely joins the great one. Definitely joins the pantheon of good or interesting villains that the Doctor is not able to overcome. And scary as balls, giant spider. Yep, Aragog, Shelob, the great one. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> So, we now come to the overall. Our last overall for the third Doctor. Yeah, which is sad. But hey, you know, there is more to come. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Much more. Did you go first last week or did you go first? I think you went first last week. Okay, you go first. Okay. Um, So, we've come to the end of the road. And I'm going to say, unfortunately doesn't hit home as well as I would have hoped it would have mm. uh, for me and like because I was going back to the regeneration stories and I made the point that the other regeneration stories were very unique mm-hmm. in the sense of like there's there was no impendingness to it it was just a fantastic it was like a really really good story the whole way along so like that stuff as a regeneration arc mm. I really enjoy it it's really really good okay because mm-hmm. uh, like the performances by John, Sarah Jane, uh, John Kane as Tommy, uh, Nick Courtney, the guys, uh, Kevin Lindsay, and the guy playing um, Campo, they're all really, really good. Like the performances, mm-hmm. I cannot fault, and that's what really brought got me into it. The story itself, though, it it just seemed a bit. I, I kind of get where Robert Sloman came from the whole thing. He was like, I'm burnt out of ideas. Because it's this weird hodgepodge of psychic capabilities, giant spiders, Buddhism, mysticism, all kind of really weird fucking slammed together. Mm. And it, it's all, it, I think it's been all the entire problem I've always had with uh, Planet of the Spiders in the sense of how do you like how do you go from like the start which is tibetan arming or tibetan chanting mm. all the way to giant sucking sucking giant fucking psychic spiders it's just it's just a weird it's a weird really maybe convolute is the wrong word it's just a kind of a weird cluster of a mix for me um 
like also like I I think the chase sequence as fun as it was for John as for me viewing it, it's a bit gratuitous because mm-hmm. it eats up half an episode. It's twelve minutes long. Yeah, and the the payoff for it is kind of met because it's just looked and disappears. There's no threat for the doctor. Like it's not like his mm-hmm. the boat is about to slam into a wall and he has to dive out of the way. Because uh, we've seen some other really good uh, chase cliffhangers like Ambassadors of Death, where Liz. Mm-hmm. You know, has to flee, and she goes nearly over into the the mm. river. We want to see some really shit chases, like the day of the Daleks with the scooter. Oh, Christ, yeah, that, that was a really bad one. Like, this one's kind of in the middle, shall we say? Right. Um. So it's weird in the sense of like I the Doctor's story in it, mm. and Sarah. You know, the the people that it affects, like Sarah Jane, the Bray Campbell, Joe G, Tommy. I like that. The actual plot to the story, I'm not. I I am not really engaged in. I don't. I, I it's. I'm not a big fan of it. Okay. So initially, I had it down as a two. I Jesus. Have, yeah. I, you know, because <laughs> it, again, like it was just like I was enjoying this. I was enjoying John and Sarah Jane. I was enjoying that aspect of it, but the actual overall plot, it just. I don't like it. It, mm. it just. It just kind of bores me. Okay. But I. Oh, I but. A two is, it's not fair to the guys. It's not mm. fair to the performances. So I have bumped it to a 3.5 based off the fact of the performances really, really bring. If I, you know, to do a skim watch, I'll skim watch the actual arc parts of the character. Mm. You know? Um, so yeah, it's a 3.5 out of 5. Okay. When you said two, I was like, Jesus, that's lower than Death of the Daleks. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but I was like, but see, and Carnival was, of Monsters. Yeah, I was like, it's it's just like, every time the plot got in the way, like every time the plot happened, I felt like it was getting in the way of my enjoyment of the actual John's performance. Because it, I wanted to see the arc of the character facing, you know, like trying to save everyone by facing his own death, which is, mm. is great. It's such a doctor thing to do. But everything else feels like it's sidetracking from that, <laughs> you know. So the, the that that that's it for me, you know. So just for FYI, so that brings your average for season eleven to a four point oh. That's a respectable score, I think. Yeah, my average is currently three point nine four. So let's see what my average goes to. <laughs> okay. So, um, I actually really liked it. All um, right. <laughs> I always remembered this story because the fucking chasing, which is not as long as I thought. I thought it was an entire episode. Mm. It's not that long. It's just half of it. Uh, it's still ridiculously wrong, though. So that's going to lead me into the things that I don't like, right? Which I'll cover okay, first. Yeah. I get what Barry wanted to do. Let John play, but Jesus fucking Christ. Since when do we have a gyrocopter? Since when does the Who-mobile fly? Hmm. Like, there's pandering to John's whims and there's wasting time and budget that could have been better spent elsewhere. All that I was missing was that, like, you know, after they got off the boats, they found a donkey derby and they were just fucking chasing after each yeah, other. Yeah, like, it, you know, he needs to start on a bicycle and yeah. then he goes to the Bessie and then he goes to the gyrocopter and then he goes... It was way too much. Hmm. I will say as well, our unit regulars were great. Yeah. Mike, I only wanted to punch him once. So, kudos to Mike. 
Tommy was fucking phenomenal. I think that performance was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Choji was good. A couple of moments where you're like, okay, a little bit racist there, Kevin. Um, and Kempo was good. Yeah. The rest of them, though, I thought were quite lacking. Particularly the people of Metabilis. It's very wooden. Very wooden by all of them. It's very... Like we have said before, there are people who will take the most bonkers bullshit Mm -hmm. written in a Doctor Who script and make it believable. Mm -hmm. And there are people who turn up and they do it like it's a Saturday afternoon play for children where it's so wooden, it's ridiculous. Actually, yeah, that's like the scenes on Metabolist Tree came across like a play. Yeah. Um, So that bothered me. Now, there was still some interesting stuff with those characters. Um, like we didn't discuss them like Arik I think is a very interesting character you know you can see why his people follow him. Tuar is also really interesting because he's the hothead but unlike the hotheads we've seen in recent stories he has a lot of hearts mm-hmm. you know and he doesn't turn against his brother and Sabor is just weird. He's this great dad and I cannot but laugh because how calm he is just lying there being like oh no we're going to die by the way. They're going to eat us. <laughs> There's no point in struggling, so let's just enjoy the rest, shall we? It's like the it's like the the, the people of denial in Eric the Viking. Their city is sinking. They're literally on the last building. They're like, yeah. no, we're perfectly fine. Yeah, um, like I think those characters were actually interesting. I just think that a lot of the and particularly the performance of Sabor's wife hmm. was particularly difficult to get through. Um, no offense to that actress and stuff, but it. It wasn't good. Hmm. Surprisingly. <laughs> In the words of Daryl O'Brien, get that fucking ham off the screen. <laughs> Surprisingly, the pacing wasn't as big an issue for me this time around, other than the chase scene. It is fairly fast paced, I'll give it that. On to what I did like, though. Mm-hmm. The Doctor, fantastic. His arc, brilliant. Sarah Jane, brilliant. Like I said, playing all the hits there. The unit guys were very good. Like I actually. There were moments I liked Mike. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought I've ever said that? <laughs> I did actually like the story as a whole. And I'll come back around to my different read on the bits that you found off about that. Mm-hmm. Choji and Kampo were great. The callback to the Doctor's recent and far past was great. The callback to Joe. The special effects on the spiders was really good. Like, mm. like you said, they don't move around very much. But they mostly kind of like rock back and forth there's a shuddering which motion is, which, which is, is creepy which is, which is it, creepy as fuck yeah. um, the regeneration scene was brilliant and Tommy just mm-hmm. Tommy's performance is fantastic the thing I liked about the story as a whole mm-hmm. <laughs> is that I actually saw the two things as this perfect dovetail in a way that you didn't okay. because we have Choji and Kempo and Mike in, in the reason why he went we have this Tibetan buddhist monastery type setting and this idea of um peace of mind and power of the mind through internal self-reflection you know through meditation and through looking within yourself and then we have the mirror image of that which is power of the mind through happenstance through science in a yeah. way um, with the spiders and then we have the doctor who kind of bridges the line between that because 
he has um, Professor Clegg, who's a natural, um, you know, his his ESP mm. is natural. But we have the Doctor wanting to look at it from a scientific perspective, and I kind of liked how the three different ways of getting to a peace of mind or a power of the mind all kind of intertwined, mm. and how you can see the corrupt nature of the way the spiders do it and the way that Lupton was doing it. Mm. You can see the scientific focus around what the doctor was doing and how he's clearly missing something in there by playing with things that maybe he shouldn't hence why sadly Clegg died and then we have the more natural way with Kempo and Choji and so I actually quite liked the way they all kind of dovetailed in together um so I don't know. That was my read on that, and that was the way that I I watched it. I I you know I can I honestly I can see that right. Um, especially when it's like this, because we talked about, um, the point. I think the point that we, would this might actually be the point though, where Campo says that the reason that Tommy was able to survive for so long was because his innocent nature protected him from yeah. the and like Yates to the extent no Yates took a fairly bad bash of it, but his compassion for Tommy in that moment. So maybe that was like a surge of adrenaline because like, you know, if it was just going off his normal compassion, he might be dead. Mm. But yeah, to your point, I can see it being like how the inherent abilities within someone, the inherent mm. you know, traits within someone are capable of overcoming the artificial traits mm. given to someone else. It's like, and I, I get that. I can appreciate those points. But for some reason, those points that you just laid out to me mm. and the watching of it, just for me, they don't click. Mm. They, they, And as you say, they dovetail. They should fit together naturally. For me, it's just like my enjoyment of those two aspects of stuff <laughs> and story just do not click for me. And that's, that's okay too. Yeah. You know? uh, you're, you're entitled to your oh, experience. No, I, no absolutely. <laughs> no, but it, it's, the, it's the weird thing where it's like, I see what you're saying and like on paper, like, okay, I'll put you this here, right? Like I've I've said to you like a couple of times before, I've said on the podcast, like, I'm a big fan of professional wrestling, okay? Yeah. And you can have like guys that are like you know, like they're the peak performance of okay, I, okay, to give an example, right? Mm -hmm. There was a match between two guys that worked in New Japan Pro Wrestling, and it was phenomenal, absolutely amazing. Then they both moved to WWE and they were put together in into a similar match, and everyone was really hyped for it. And it just, it fizzled. The, mm. They had the same chemistry, but for whatever reason, it didn't ignite. It, it just didn't pick mm. up the paces that it should have been. That, to me, is kind of like this. Like, where it is something that I, on paper, I should like. But mm. for whatever reason, it just didn't click. You did remind me of the bit I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, with Mike and Tommy. Yeah. Campo, I love you. Your reasoning for how they survived that electrical charge is a load of bullshit. <laughs> Tommy being able to survive because he looked into the crystal is a good enough reason. Yeah. You're telling me that the people on Metabilis, the children that were slaughtered in mm -hmm. this other village that we heard mention of, mm -hmm. weren't innocent? That there was no selflessness in those people to the point where, like, no one can believe that the doctor is even going to live because he was hit by a bolt. Yeah. It is a death sentence mm. to be hit by one of them. 
So, I love you, Kempo. I call fucking bullshit on that reason. Yeah. The reason is Tommy looked into the crystal that gave him increased mental powers. Mm-hmm. Made him a bit resistant in the same way the doctor was, except the doctor hadn't been ignited in the same way Tommy had been. Mm-hmm. And Mike lived because you didn't want to kill him off. Yeah. <laughs> because when you have an earlier scene where you describe about how the eight legs slaughtered a people. And yeah, you could say like, oh, maybe they killed them with swords or maybe you killed them, whatever. But we've seen that their weapon of choice is this electrical power. Mm-hmm. Or, or a stun baton made out of the actual uh, crystal. Yeah. So you're telling me that no one has ever survived it, but innocence and selflessness will save you. Yeah, like it's... There is something. Someone made a comment recently, on a, on a like I won't like someone made a comment recently in relation to that about you know current events in the world, mm. and they used like the I suppose the analogy of like oh well you know no one is truly innocent and a lot of people were like fuck that. That is the there height. are plenty of people out there, there who there are. Are, there are that is the height of bullshit. So like to say that people are suffering because they go they're not inherently innocent, fuck that. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's bullshit. So yeah. yeah, like oh yeah, no, that that is a point like yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that. I, I don't yeah. like that. So overall, as a regeneration story, I thought it was great. As a story as a whole, I thought it was great as well. Um the three big kickers for me are that fucking chase scene went on way too long the acting of particularly the metabolist cast mm. like the spiders were great as well the spider voices were mm. fantastic um, but particularly the metabolist cast and some of the other guys at the monastery weren't great Yeah. and that comment by Campo mm. each of those lost a quarter of a point for me mm. so I brought down to 4.25 so that would bring my average for the season to a 4.0. The average is just 4.0. So, uh, I don't know what it was. I gave Death of the Daleks a slightly higher. I gave it a 2.5 and you gave it a 2. Mm. So that, yeah. Yeah, that, that mitigates everything out. And then I gave Monster of Peladon a slightly lower. And so it all balances out. So yeah. yeah. An average of a 4.0. Which, you know, not the highest average we've seen, you know, um, certainly far from the lowest. And it means that John had one, two, three seasons of John's five have an average of four or above. Nice. That's which good. is very good. Is Kudos very to good. John. <laughs> well done, John. <laughs> so we're not done with John yet, though. No, we're not. So we're going to say goodbye for today to the Cape mm-hmm. James Bond. We said hello for a moment to Teeth and Curls. Yes. But we will be talking more about John this week. So mm-hmm. on Wednesday, we will be releasing our special Rambling in the TARDIS, where we look at back at the Third Doctor's strengths, weaknesses, as well as his best and worst stories. And after that, we are ushering in a new era. We are ushering yep. in the Tom Baker, the Fourth Doctor era, with the story Robot. Yes. Until then, though. Bye. Bye.